Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. From Pee-wee to Dumbo and everything in between, join us every Thursday in April for Filmography Tim Burton. Our five-part season will break down all 19 of Burton's feature-length films to date in detail. Follow Filmography on Spotify or wherever else you find your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. to all of you amazing pod people out there. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be The Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music, to the world of entertainment, of performance, and just to give you a little bit of a background, if this is the first time you are tuning in, every single week I bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and entertainment and performance worlds. And that could really mean me chatting to a musician or a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, really anyone obsessed with performance in the way that we are around these parts. But before we dig into this week's fantastic interview, why do you never say hello? (laughs) I'm always introducing the show and then looking in the sky and thinking, where is he? But you're sitting right in front of me. You know, it's one of those podcast rules. You have to have your name said before you can speak. I'm breaking that rule right now. You have to? You have to have your name said before you can speak as a guest. Thou shall not speak. Unless spoken to. (laughs) It sounds really PC for a really casual medium. Hey, babe, I'm real serious. (laughs) So let's check in then with our constant companion here. TMBTG Studios engineer and producer extraordinaire, Adam. Hello. 
Hi, now I can speak freely. Hey, I'm a real friendly guy. I like chatting on the radio. Hey, turn your dials up and turn the tune down. What I pictured was an old car driving in the in the middle of nowhere with one tumbleweed ah, rolling yes. down the street. Hey, this Somebody is the radio tumbleweed. And it's the only station they can get to, unfortunately. I think I would do well in a community radio station like that in the <laughs> Old West. Sure. Yeah, that's what I was made for. Go there. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm popping champagne bottles. <laughs> I'm putting Why? on my party hat. <laughs> that's the strangest I am cutting thing. the proverbial cake. Why? Well, this week marks the one year anniversary of us doing this show how incredible is that 365 days of this must be the gig through the microphone yeah those are fireworks you're hearing those are really weird fireworks and it's something that i wouldn't have been able to do without you it's true that's so kind of you thank you i think so and more importantly I don't think I would have been able to do it without all of our wonderful listeners as well, who have created this really lovely community. When I started dreaming up this project, I didn't really know where we'd get, but I knew I wanted to share the insightful and talented minds, the hearts, the words of creative geniuses that I loved and that I'd been interviewing for all these years. And over the course of the last year, this project has really brought me not only to people that I never thought I would ever meet but also to places that I never thought I would work for the podcast in but uh, I took the podcast to Iceland and Canada where else did I go I went to Portugal Portugal and all around the United States of America I also got to sit backstage with legends and bring my mobile podcast rig to hotel bars and got laughed at at uh, <laughs> airport gates and chatted on the phone with my heroes and I did it all as a way to really just service the spirit of live music and live performance and to share the secret magic of that world with everybody it's truly been a blessing and an honor I can't I, I always hear podcast hosts getting a little bit soppy at their, you know, reunion marks and the the moments in history where they like look back and and I really want to just say thank you to each and every one of the listeners out there for reaching out when you had stories of your own to tell, reaching out when you really loved particular episodes and artists and it's the amazing opportunity that the internet has afforded us you know we're, we're here to listen to, to your thoughts and feelings and we want to share all of these uh, thoughts and feelings of artists with you that's beautiful <laughs> it's true it's a great it's a one-year mark it's great but let's let's get on with it because oh. one year means we have a moment a momentary reflection yes but it also means we have so much to still do. We've only hit the one-year mark, and there's so much more to come. And the best way to keep pushing that forward is for each and every one of you to go out there and share the word with more people so we can continue to keep growing our little community and bring you all sorts of exciting new interviews and episodes. So leave us a note about the show on Twitter 
Facebook, Instagram at TMBTGPod. Better yet, uh, leave a review in the form of a best concert experience or a first concert experience. Make it a five-star review, please, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, and we'll shout you out as we do each and every week. This week's shout-out goes to someone going by I Am Ego. <laughs> That's a strange choice of a name, but... No, wait, isn't Ego the guy from um, Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. The villain is... Yeah, is is that dad. his name? Right? Kurt Russell. Yeah, is that Kurt Russell? I don't know. Maybe it's Kurt no, Russell. it is Kurt Russell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean Kurt Russell commented on our... Yes, Maybe. absolutely. Maybe, sure, why not? Everybody. Yes, now Kurt we know. Kurt Russell. But let's return the attention to this week's mind-bamboozling, beautiful chat with the mountain goats, John Darnell, who has rightfully amassed uh, a extensive cult following. Fans have his lyrics tattooed on their bodies, credit his words for saving their lives, and in addition to handfuls of beloved records, John has written a pair of novels that are so great. Yeah. Love both of those books, and yet despite having sent all of those beautiful words and thoughts into the world, John somehow still had the verbose capacity to share a couple of hours with me on a conversation that ranges from his very first performances through to a brand new album in League with Dragons out in April 26th via Merge Records. And just a little note that this is the kind of chat where John's young son jumping into the conversation feels as natural as a story about dream venues, eating habits on the road, and his near hoarding penchant for collecting things. He's gonna kill me for that. <laughs> you know, he's just got a stunning breadth of knowledge and interests even before you get to the music. And this is maybe, I've got to say, a top five Mountain Goats album for me, which is really saying something. This Agreed. is an incredible record. Owen Pallet produced, which is a good start for any record. You've also got an incredible array of musicians. You've got the typical John Darnielle collaborators, but there's just so much more to this record. There's so many musicians on this album, too. It feels really fluid and uh, all-encompassing. It's got a lot of hints of high fantasy with dragons and wizards but then there's also really down to earth for lack of a better term songs about death and reality creeping in it's a really incredible record that encompasses so much it's orchestral and feel without being contrived which is such a tight line to walk but i think because as you talked with john in your conversations it really does feel as if there's a cohesion to the band as opposed to everybody trying to play their part. It feels like everybody's working together. Absolutely. Absolutely. The tone that it has and the temperament and how, as you said earlier, each idea metaphorically brings in ideals that we all, you know, go through every day. Absolutely. Even in the shape of a dragon. And in the chat, I also loved John's perspective on the differing reactions Mountain Goats gigs have gotten around the world, his yeah. theory that connects Magic the Gathering to his worldview, and just so much more. And I, I'm not kidding when I say so much more. This is no, it's long. a long episode. Should we have done part one and part two. I feel like that's how a novel that he would have written, would, you know what I Perhaps, mean? Perhaps, like, but also reading through Wolf and White Van, that's a thrill ride. You just want to read the whole thing in one sitting. You're going to want to 
just binge through this entire nearly two-hour episode. And also the album coming out. Yes, jam it all together into one afternoon, I dare you. It's going to be good. Just a few weeks. I couldn't have imagined or even dreamed up a better guest to have uh, mark our one-year anniversary. But let us not be delayed. This is me and John. Enjoy! My day yesterday, like I have an office where I do my prose writing, right? mm. and uh, and I had literally forty minutes between interviews and picking up the kids to school to oh write. But gosh. I know I can do it, right? Yes. As long as the as long as the lock on my office door isn't broken. Right? <laughs> if the lock on my office door is broken, then when I get to the office for my forty blessed minutes of just creating, like I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so and it wasn't fixed. I didn't get in. I was like, okay, well, great. I'll just go get my son then. <laughs> Oh my God. So did you give yourself that time or was that the only time you were given? And was there some sort of I had, feeling? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah. I gave myself that time. Uh, I mean, okay. yeah, there's no, there's no way of, if they give me an hour between, all that means is like I have an hour to look at the internet. That's all yeah. is that space. So. <laughs> but wait, you wouldn't just sit and stare into the beautiful garden that you maybe or, have <laughs> i don't know where you live i think i think i speak on behalf of several generations <laughs> when i say we're not, we're not really good at that sort of thing anymore <laughs> I, think, I think now when we have the beautiful garden we go to the beautiful garden with our phone and we read twitter <laughs> no but you've got to is there i'm sure that the time that you're spending with your kids you're fully engaged oh it's great it's great i'm not yeah. complaining about that but it is it's the thing is like I don't see it's any funny. of this as complaining, by the way. None of it's, it's just life. No, well, I'm glad. It's just life. But, but with kids, it's funny. It's like, it's so rewarding and great. I, I, you, you have a really good time. But it also is in that middle space where, you know, if you don't put it at least somewhat in the work, in the work space that you're allotting in your head, you're not being real with yourself. It's like, no, there's a, there's a degree of it that's like you're doing something for somebody else mm. in the hopes that it really helps them. You know, it's like, so, so it's not all of it like that. It's interesting. But I always, I, I feel like, especially because we spoke like two weeks ago or maybe a week ago, I don't know time anymore. Time is, is not. I think anything. it was last week, yeah. Um, and I just know how generous you are in general with your time. And while obviously I was so appreciative, I was just, when I got off the phone, I was thinking how you discern between who needs more of your time and who doesn't. Outside, I'm talking about work stuff. Because I don't want anyone taking advantage of you, John. That's basically what I'm saying. Oh, you are so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's me. I'm the one who does it. I, like, you can yeah. ask my fresh guys. I think they, they go, you yeah, know, John quite often tells us, no, I'm fine, he's fine. And we'll say, well, you got the next one's in 15. I'll be like, no, no, I'll, you know, if it's going well, I don't know. The thing is like, you enjoy I mean, it's not it. going well. You're very grateful for that. But like, if it's, it's yeah. I can't. It's in the middle space. I mean, I enjoyed mm-hmm. talking with you. Um, <laughs> your your interview was really great and memorable. And it's the sort of thing. Well, it's like creative work. When you emerge from it, you don't feel tired. You actually no. feel like you have new ideas. Right? Absolutely. Um, you feel and energized. that is a big difference. Yeah. Whereas when you're answering questions about your record, and again, I always want to say not complaining, but but it's very much, you know, you do what you're supposed to do. And at the end of it, you know, well, it's, it's really fine if I don't get something out of literally every interaction I have. You know, like that's not... That's not reality. That's fine. But, but at the same time, you and I have a good conversation uh, and, and we talk about all sorts of things. At the end of it, you go, well, I would have had that if it wasn't on the schedule. Mm. <laughs> it's like I would, yeah. I would have that conversation anyway. Yeah. Whereas normally, 
I would not opt to answer 20 minutes worth of questions about music that I hope speaks for itself. Absolutely. No, and I hear you. I just think it's it's a really fascinating, just in my mind, it's really fascinating because I go through days sometimes where the only people that I'm talking to are people that I don't know or have never met. And I have these beautiful connections because I connect either with your art or with who you are in the core and in the, you know, in the mushy side of the inside. (laughs) And then I feel it. And then I leave and I'm like, oh, I haven't spoken to my mom today or, you know, and I feel fulfilled (laughs) and I feel rejuvenated. And then my husband comes home and I tell him all about it. But there's a funny sense of like you're in this weird silo sometimes and I feel like I'm so I'm so cognizant and I understand that you have a life so what I'm saying is I am saying if you want to cut me off at any point during this conversation because I know you've had a morning of chats you can do so and we could always pick up you know another day so no that's fine. I want to share a fear with you, though. And my fear is that you're yes. going to now ask if it's okay to start recording, whereas I'm, from the minute the phone rings, I'm off. Into okay. the races. So we're, this is all part of it, right? Oh, yeah. No, I was recording from so You would be shocked. You would be shocked. What People do you mean? And, and I am me. What do you so mean? So they're on the line, and I'm like, oh. and I'm yammering, I'm talking, I'm, and, I, and I feel like I'm maybe dishing some stuff that will be usable and good. And they'll yeah. say, okay, well, I'll just start up the, the recorder now. I go, no, that was 10 minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's this so is, strange. It lots of times. There's this times. there's this weird sense of um separation that people have with the work that they do. I feel like I yeah. it's like I'm a robot and it automatically happens. I record essentially so that I don't have to worry about concentrating on writing notes if that makes sense. So I want to right. I want you to have all of my attention. Because yes. why would we be doing this in the first place? Um, so I would never. No, I press record, and then panic if it's recording the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you have a little bit of a persona? Like, how do you operate within your? Like, how much of this? So, yeah, you you understand my um, question. I do understand your question, and I think it's a question, but I don't think it's especially a question for me. You know what I mean? It's like yes. it's a question for everybody. Like what, you know, I mean, it's a question actually in college I was obsessed with, with you know, the idea of the authentic self. And I think everybody in college goes through a phase where they go, there's no such thing as the authentic self. It's construction. It's all constructed, right? But I don't think that's true anymore. I think somewhere – Somewhere down at the center is is the you you're most comfortable with, the one you recognize, right? Uh, there may be a couple of those. Right? I don't think there's one that is more authentic or primary than yeah. other ones. You know what I mean? It's like, and I don't think these selves are. When we say selves, it's not Jekyll and Hyde. It's they they share tons of space. It's more like overlapping uh, color transparencies. Yeah. Uh, I would say circles, but they're not all circular. Some of them are like you know, there's your there's your busy self, there's your angry self. In some ways, you know, if you're cranky. <laughs> You are a different self, right? Yeah. It's like you're that's that that's me, but now things that I would normally laugh at I find irritating. Right? So uh and that's everybody I think experiences that. Um so I I mean the real me swears more than I generally do in interviews, right? Um Yes. Not because I think there's anything and I don't swear less just because I think there's anything wrong with it. That's just that's sort of who I feel you like are. presenting most of the yes. time. You know, it's like uh 
but uh, you know, you try and be your best self, obviously, in reviews. You try not to share, like, if you have any ideas of which you're not proud, you leave those out, right? It's like, you know. I mean, I, mean, I, I, should, I I've you know? never been on your side, so I wouldn't. I would probably be very bad at it. So, because I, I will so, just let thing? let everything go. But no, I understand what you're saying. So there's kind of just a you're just more aware of yourself in that present moment as opposed to... You try, to... except there's a thing. So I get very <laughs> anxious talking to people. So usually, I'm very yeah. glad these are earlier interviews because if it's any time yeah. after 2.30, then I'll pop a bottle of wine while I'm working. And that, yeah. and then, you know, and that wine loosens you up a little bit and then you feel less nervous talking to people. Yeah. And, but then you also are much more likely to go, you know, this reminds me of a time I was sharing needles. So maybe... You know, not everybody needs to be hearing about. <laughs> no, and I also think there's a, there's a time and a place, right? I certainly don't think that yeah. you are needing to drop your guard at every moment. I think that self-protection, is, although sometimes really dangerous, is really important, especially with a professional yeah. sense. But when discussing your music, I feel like I can imagine people feel like you share... You would share anything because you are so candid and so open within your writing, within your songs. Oh, no, there's a ton of stuff I'm not – there's there's much I, – I, I show I like the parts that. of me that I think will be helpful. Yeah, so. right. But that's interesting because also knowing how dangerous it is for people who are just starting out in the industry and touring and then they get caught up and they don't understand, you know, how much of themselves they need to keep to themselves, you know? I think yes. that that's also no, that's, interesting. Um... But wait, so are you a hoarder of, I mean, because you're a hoarder, like just, you, you're a, a, a um, I'm an a controlled, yes, yeah. you're an acquirer of stuff, of stuff and you like to collect ideas in the form of either objects or things that you can read. Yes, but as when I, I always use the word collect uh, hesitantly. Because when I think of a collector, I think of somebody who takes good care of their stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? No, I'm not like and that. And <laughs> I don't. My, stu- my stuff is there to be used. Yes. Right? It's like my stuff will get used up. I will break some of it. I will lose some of it. I will give some of it away. You know, my, my children will destroy a fair, a fair amount of it. And, and all that is fine. All that's fine. It's all about use value for me. Maybe this is me projecting again. But what do your books look like after you've read them? Like, do you do the bunny oh, ears? Fairly good. I try to take good care of them. Oh no, you see, I don't I understand don't you. To... Nope, that's where we disconnect. Oh. <laughs> nope, that's it. You're out. You're out. Sorry. No, I don't. I don't mark them up much, and I don't. I don't like to bend them over. Right. I, oh no, I, I don't them, do that. That's that's they, a, they being a pretty, monster. Yeah. They still no. look pretty weathered when I get done with them, okay. um, and I do underline sometimes these days. So I'm not a purist about it. Okay, but I good. would like them to still look kind of nice. I don't want them to look all like like I kicked them around or anything. Oh, damn it. See, I love it when <laughs> I finish with a book and it looks like it's been beaten up. You know, like I love I, it. No, I want to cry on it. I want to like drop my, my, my food on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like one of my most worn out books is the Riverside Chaucer. Mm-hmm. And it's falling apart. Like when I yeah. open it to read it, pages, big chunks of it fall out. Right. Yeah, that, so I that's I, that's I, not you know. great. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not talking barbaric behavior. I'm yeah. just saying. Oh no, my books get gently worn. Okay, good. I, 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 I treat them. I treat them like friends. I don't. I can write in them. I can. I write. I actually, I write notes about other things. In like if I books. need to reach for a piece of notebook paper for a lyric or something or mm-hmm. another, I will not hesitate to write it in the back of a book. You know, because that's a piece of say it's a blank paper, so I have that now. Um, but like I read Dante's Inferno last year, and you would probably not know that this book had been read. Uh, I, I, I read it gently. I, uh, oh my gosh. I, I took it around on my backpack. It's got a slight bend on the front. 
So I don't, I'm not trying to keep it in mint condition or anything, but, uh, but it looks pretty glossy still. So what I'm saying is that why I'm being so judgmental is that I wish I were like you and I wish I could take care of my books, but there's just something that happens. I think it's because I do take them everywhere. So they are like my laptop or, you know, and yeah. I take care of my clothes. I take care of my stuff um, after having like my mom's family come from Lithuania and have Russian, you know, blood. So everything's always in order. But I feel like with books, there's something about my level of interaction with them that I need to, after I put a book down, I need to be able to go, that was good. You know, like I, I experienced yeah, yeah. you, I took you everywhere, you know, I held yeah. you, I caressed you, <laughs> and then I I'm so sorry. And they're always in my backpack and they get banged up, right? They get, they get a little banged up. But I, I still, I also am so enchanted by the look of a fresh book. I know. You know when they get banged up, I'm I know. always, oh, I like it, I like it, I do. <laughs> that's a library book, you know. I took, the other day I took so many books out from the library and I had to walk my puppy very far. And I was like, I don't have a bag. I have my puppy in the one hand. Right. And I tried my hardest. So when it's someone else's book, I definitely take care. And I don't do bunny ears and that kind of stuff if it's a, if it's a library book. But if it's my right, own, right. then <laughs> gloves are off. Actually kind of like, my father was the kind of person who would underline in a book you loaned him. Right? Oh, I <laughs> mean, I've, I've always, done it. I was, <laughs> I've done it. I thought that ruled. I was like, wow, your immersion in the text is so total. It's so that total. The book doesn't have any owner. Right? Like, <laughs> exactly. It's just you and that text, and you're not thinking anything else about it. Right? <laughs> exactly. I love that. Do you feel like you do that with ideas? Like, do you hoard your ideas as well? <sighs> Um, yeah, I mean, for me, as you can probably tell, talking to me, like, I'm, a, I'm kind of like a dog, you know, like, <laughs> like an idea can completely possess me. Well, like a D-A-W-G, no, I'm kidding. Yes? No, 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 like an actual canine, right? Like, <laughs> like, like, there's a, you know, if a dog is like completely obsessing around a bone, yes. and a squirrel runs past, yeah. right? <laughs> then it's like the bone never existed, right? The bone, it's like, oh, it's a squirrel. Well, that's cool, <laughs> amazing, right? And then if something else happens, and, you know, then you come up with a frisbee, hey, what about this? And the dog's like, wow, I don't even know what a squirrel is anymore mm. because you brought me this amazing <laughs> frisbee, right? I'm kind of like that. Like, like I get utterly obsessed with something, mm. but with an idea, you know, with, um, oh, here's a, a, a way that I'm talking about a lot, the cycle, because it's what I'm obsessing on now, is a game called Magic the Gathering, right? Yes. My friends I'm gonna play try that. Not to, I'm going to try not to explain it too densely, but but so so it takes a long, long time, and I'm a noob, and so I wouldn't be able to explain it well enough. But check this out. Check this out. There's there's these four. Is it four? Red, black, green, white. No, there's more than that. Red, black, green, white, blue. Uh, five colors, mm -hmm. right? That creatures and spells have, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they're. Each one has his own color, which you have to pay to get them out there on the board, right? You have these things called lands, and when you have enough lands of the right color, then you can activate your creatures and spells. You can bring them out, right? Okay. And they, in the storyline of the of the cards, which have these wizards and merfolk and elves and whatever else on them, right? These colors become affiliated with certain uh, industries and practices in in the world of the game, right? Okay. And they came up with an idea a while back where the colors. Uh, had, had allegiances, right? So there's, there's like a very popular deck right now is white-blue. Right? Okay. 
white ones just attack, basically. I mean, their main thing is they attack for some points, and they can help each other get bigger and attack for more points. Yes. And the blue ones control the pace of the game by forcing your opponent to maybe throw away cards, right, or by putting your opponent's creatures to sleep or whatever. Okay. So that's the Simic guild. It's blue and white, right? I am so obsessing about these guilds right now, right? <laughs> about how they, how, oh, the, like, like I'll build a deck that's a green black one, which is Golgari. And I'll go, oh, yes, the Golgari is mine. That's exactly my, my crew right now. Oh. And I want to build nothing but green black decks until mm-hmm. one morning I go, what if it was red black, right? Oh. And then green black is no more. Right? Yeah. Green black, that was You're last done. week. And I'm very yes. not interested in that anymore. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and I'm like that with, so I use that as an idea, right? I think about, because each one like has its own mechanism. But green ones are largely about growth, right? okay. uh, making making creatures bigger, um, creatures making themselves bigger. The black ones are largely about like uh, are, are goth, right? Mm-hmm. They're vampires. Um, they often have a mechanism called death touch, which means that if they attack you and you try to block, then you die. Your you die. Dies, yes. Right? So, yes. Not you, but the yeah. character you're blocking yeah. with <laughs> dies, right? So that's your your well, sort of a bit of your heart dies. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yes. So, so you think about these right now when you ask about ideas and whether I whether I adopt them. Like right now, I'm really thinking about those. Okay, a blue black. What does blue black <laughs> look like? And I think all day. This will pass, I suspect. Although I don't know because I'm in the grip of the obsession right now. Mm, <laughs> it's hard mm, to say. Mm. But uh, but yeah. So I collect those, and then when I move on to something else, that will still be in there. It'll be a way of thinking that I've sort of got internalized. Getting there with that, I'll tell you something about growing older. <laughs> it's like finding an idea or a way of thinking about stuff that you hadn't considered yet mm-hmm. and spending enough time with it to recognize it as something you hadn't thought about yet. Like the time for that grows rarer, you know, and uh, the opportunity to do it is it's precious when you go, Oh, I'm actually, when you're thinking about these color guilds, you're not actually thinking about the game or anything. You're thinking about moods and aspects, right. And, and narrative structures and themes, how themes play with each other, you know? Yeah. You're looking to be inspired and influenced. Yeah, exactly. I feel like exactly. you, yeah. especially after, you know, getting to spend a little bit of time with you, it's, it seems like the world around you is, but you know, you, you are constantly curious about everything and having that one day. I am pretty, pretty into being on the planet. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. Yes, Leo, I like being here and alive. <laughs> well, no, it's, but not everybody does. And I don't always either. I mean, everybody's been through. Yeah, you know, we all like, have our actually, shitty days. Yesterday I had a frustrating day. And by the end of the day, I was taking no joy in anything. I was like, it was just, everything was a burden and everything was bad. But <laughs> then how do you, how do you then stop going crazy if you're on tour and that lifestyle is not as easy to tap into because you don't have your creature comforts. You don't have your wife, your kids, your things that, you know, bring you joy and excite right. you and fill you. So then when you're touring, how do you make sure that you are loving everything around you, curious, wonder. Is it because well, you you're don't? I get into... very, very depressed oh. on tour. I get tour is oh, a, no. a pretty bad mental health space. Yeah, for me. yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing is, well, but again, I mean, it's like you know, I've probably said this like thirty times. I don't want people to think. You know, John Darnell shows up in the conversation. Boy, let me tell you about the hazards and the pain of touring, right? Because no, I'm I definitely aware. Yeah, just going forward, I can tell you whatever. If there is anything that I am concerned about that you have said, I will point it out. I certainly don't think. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll never let you just say something without actually challenging you on it. <laughs> so, like, have faith, but also thank you because there's a lot of people yeah. who well, do say something. Like, because I, I have the dream job, right? I have the job people want, where I set my own hours, right? 
And also, when I'm doing the parts of the work that that are the most rewarding, they're unimaginably rewarding for work, right? You know, like, we all, hopefully, whatever job anybody does, you find a way to enjoy doing your work, right? And I've done that in every job. I, I get into what I'm doing. I, you know, it's like when I, was, when I was washing dishes, you know, if you can sit around and complain or you can get into the, the mood of the kitchen, right? So, uh, and, and that's what you do is like for me, if you're me, you say, well, you have fun with it, you know, but in my job, it's not dishwashing. It's making music for a living, right? So I'm really super conscious of like any complaint I air, people will rightly think, man, you know, I will take that complaint over somebody telling me I did my work badly, mm, you know, mm. for, when I, when I know I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think people know you certainly for someone who maybe they think on the outset that you love touring. Obviously you've toured so much. Well, I love, but this is the thing. So I love playing yeah. right, the shows. I love the actual last show, motion like of my life. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but the, the vibe of tour, some days it rules, some days it's amazing. You know, and when you're having when you're having those times on tour, you really do go, wow, people who don't do this don't even have access to this feeling. Right. It's like when you are you and your band of brothers in, or in one sister in our case, um, you know, but you and your crew, you know, I mean, it's like the word crew starts to, to, to really hold a resonance. You know, I, I was texting Peter and John today. We can't wait to hang out, right, to be in the bus together, even though. When we're on the bus, we don't like, hang that much. Yeah. Like, John rests and I rest, and you know, I, I rest a lot. I spend a lot of time just lying on my back in the back lines, listening to music, trying to get myself in the right frame of mind. Because if I let, if I'm not careful, I will sink into a depression hole, and uh, and it's really hard to climb back out when you're on tour. It's like no, I'm very, sure. especially very surrounded. You're surrounded by people constantly, and people also needing things, asking you for things. Yeah. And also touring is, uh, well, touring, especially with a crew and a band, it's kind of world building, which is kind of, it goes along what you, sometimes you, your lyrics are about. Sometimes, you know, the things that you, like Magic the Gathering, you're, you're building worlds yeah. and it's the same there, but it's just in real life with real people. Yeah, and- no, it's totally, that's right. You're in this sort of pod um, and you sort of have to be a steward of it. But I do, here's the thing. I think my jumping off point for that was, mm. uh, there are two of us who tend to bring more stuff. Like most people who know a lot about touring will be like, man, bring your razor, and bring your clothes. <laughs> yeah. right? And then everything else, if you need it, you can get it on tour. You can get it right? on tour. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And you won't spend that much money. It's like, if you need a book, you buy a book Yeah. You know? and, uh, maybe bring one, and, but don't bring all the books you hope to read. Yes. They'll be in your way. Mm. You can't tell me that. No, because <laughs> you need your things. True. Yeah, I load my and the thing is, so we're on a bus now. So I bring like I have a closet back there, <laughs> and the closet <laughs> is filled with stuff. I bring an incense burner. I bring books. Huh. I bring DVDs. I never watch because mm. movies are like last on my list of things to do. I bring books, which are hard to read on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the main thing is music. The main thing is making sure you have good headphones and you've curated your library well enough that when the bus internet, which is bad, mm. craps out, you um, can just or when you're actually yeah. out of cell reception at all. You still have something to listen to. But so obviously, like, it just reminds me of those YouTube videos at Amoeba Music, you know, when they're like, what's in your bag? And you, like, have gone around Amoeba Music and gotten all the things. So what is – I don't want to even know what's in your bag then, what you tour with, because you just described them. But 
I'm actually thinking now, what isn't in your bag? Like, what are the things that you definitely <laughs> don't take on tour that you absolutely have to leave behind? Other than your family. What <laughs> you know? What a fine question. I, I, I don't know. I'm just, it's a weird, it's weird. But in Del- I mean, you I mean, but I don't, me. the thing is, like, I don't, if I have any question about whether I might want it with me or not, I err on you the take. side of yes. <laughs> Like, uh, like one thing I bring is my light and sound machine, Okay. Right? Uh, which is also called a mind machine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the first time I got a mind machine, we totally could not afford it. I was just obsessing about it. I was like, look at these things. You put on these dark glasses and they flash lights on your closed eyes and they flash final beats in your ears and they induce a dream state. Oh right? my and God. We is it cool. amazing? It was like, I've never used one of no, those. It's incredible. And what? Well, that's, that's what you do. You put on these, uh, but they're, they're a relic of a different... This is this affirmatively answers you like, do I collect ideas? So they're a relic of a different time in uh, both American and I think you know world or anyway uh, uh, Euro European thought when there was stuff being done with technology that would be sort of a way of exploring inner space, you know, like like biofeedback. Do you know the word biofeedback? Mm-hmm. So well, that whole concept of like learning what your pulse is and being able to look at it and trying to regulate it with your own breath or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's part of all the, all the people who sell that in sound machines also sell biofeedback machines, right? Yes. And I feel like the, the, the historical moment of that was sort of 1977, 76, but not mm-hmm. the disco people. These were the people who were sort of going a different way. Well, yeah, time, you, right? they're not using it for anxiety. Like in the 90s, I know that they used that for like post-traumatic stress disorder, addictive disorders, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that grows out of a sort of like a certain subsection of people who are curious about your relationship to your own processes, you know, and so forth. And uh, and that's and I think about those guys because you these are people who before anybody thought to have a place where you could pay to go into a flotation tank. (laughs) These are the kinds of people who would have had a flotation tank Mm -hmm. and they would have lived in Marin County, probably, and they would have made their money in early software or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and yeah, those sorts of like. That as a scene, people listen to new age music and mm. and trying to mess with the insides of their thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, is, a, is an idea I like to muse on. You know? Yeah. So you so you bring that all with you onto so onto I bring, tour. The, the light and sound machine is actually very small. Okay. Um, yeah, that's it. portable. Okay. But you have to you have to actually make time for it, or it's just bulk, right? Mm. So you have to say, here's when I'm going to do this, right? And uh, and I last tour I did some, but there's a, like I, there's two dozen things like that where I'll be like, mm. oh, you brought your gigantic <laughs> anthology of postmodern American poetry. Why did you? And it's a brick. This thing is a gigantic brick, and I brought it out twice. And I never. I don't want to read postmodern poetry in the bus. No, but you're bringing <laughs> it because it's an extension of who you are. I absolutely right. get it. Like don't. And but, any, but honestly, don't... I get it. I really do, and I love you for but it. This because is the thing, it's but this great. is where it challenges you. It looks at you sure. and you go. Who are you trying to convince here? Nobody yeah, who is even are you looking trying at your to book. Like, I know. You know, you're trying to you're trying to bring a reflection of your own self concept. Yeah, you don't need to do that. <laughs> it's like so, the other day. This I, I saw this guy boarding a plane. I was coming back from Austin, and he was boarding a plane, and he didn't have a bag. Like he just had a pair of jeans, a sweatshirt, and his phone. Like he had. Did you feel nothing. profound envy? I. 
I didn't know what to do. I like took, I like wanted to go and take a selfie. I wanted to like write about it. I, I was, I had a million opinions. It was profound. It was profound. It was, re- and now you, you know. Such a delight. You are such a great person to talk to. I want you to be famous. I, want you to, I mean, I don't want that. No, please, I don't want that. Cast, no, no, no. I'm glad. But, no, but like, I want people to read your work and hear your Aww. stuff because you're so you're, John, you're fun to talk John, to. John, that's really that's really heartwarming. This job is so hard. Like. Life is so hard, and this job is so tough sometimes. And it's like this is exactly why I do it. But anyway, so I was looking at this guy. Thank you. And I was looking at this guy, and I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to find out everything about him. It's like you know when you see those, you know when you see those people that just have those interesting faces, and you want to know everything about every move they've ever made. You know what they ate, what was on that sandwich. You know every single thing you want to know why they're doing a certain thing. And I love that feeling of how free he was and how I don't feel that at all. And I pack light, like considering how much stuff I potentially could bring with me, how my, all my, like my camera equipment, my computer, all my writing stuff, you know, my podcast equipment. And I think I pack light. And then I saw this guy and I was just like, for shame, literally looked down at my bag. And I was like, you monster. Like I didn't want I, I wanted to leave my bag but then i also know that like at airports that's not a good thing to do um but you know what (laughs) i mean stuff i talk i think about this stuff so much all the time i talked about it in therapy actually like because yeah i don't like how verbose i am right (laughs) i I talk a lot i tell stories (laughs) and when i'm talking to interviewers they think it's the best right they oh good i don't have to ask a bunch of questions you know and but i usually after i've been so verbose and talked and i go god are you just fucking interrupting people you know and not hearing what they have to say and i know i would learn so much more if i could just shut my mouth no but you're the subject and then i would be happier yeah but you're the subject the, the fact remains is like i i mean i i don't i don't think i get quite as wound up talking to to people out there in the real world but i still know i do once i get going i just sort of you know it's like chemical or whatever and uh and I like I get really judgmental with myself about it. like yeah I know if you would change this thing about yourself there's whole yeah. worlds that would be open you know but especially yeah. I think it's also because you're time, exposed you have to be you you have to be who you yeah. are but you, you can't you know you can make small changes if you go okay well look I talk way too much so let's let's try and institute a habit where you ask more questions than you usually do ask an extra question or whatever but you can't. You can't change your guild, you know, you can't. No, you but can't and also you well, can't, re- exactly, you can't regulate yourself, especially considering the work that you do and the meaning that it has on people. I think every single one of your YouTube videos that I've ever watched, and I don't really go on YouTube, I'm ashamed. I watch like, hi-ho kids eat things or eat <laughs> kids try things. I don't You're know if ashamed you that you don't go on YouTube? Well, I feel like it's this world that I, like, I can't be, I, I, like, I'm, I'm just embarrassed that I don't tap into it. I feel like it's this huge... Huge, like world i used to go on when when spotify wasn't available in all the countries that i've ever lived because you know those are third world countries and those people don't need spotify um i, I like spotify, spotify not available in like uh well, where, where where i lived in south africa for that was where i was born spotify only came right. there like last year so did the one nope, then i moved to wild. tel aviv and i was living in israel for a few years now and spotify only just arrived last year and look i like it for from a consumer point of view i don't know the horrors that artists feel from it oh um, i didn't know I'm, i i listen to spotify all the time and i have a premium membership you, we is, do too now and, and it's got like model no here's the thing though is like steve albini talks very coherently about this mm, uh, mm. cogently i guess i should say is is that you know 
look, as a musician, Spotify is a terrible raw deal. You don't, yeah, you're not no, getting paid what you, what you ought to be getting paid because no. you are actually the reason the service is successful. So everybody should eat more than they do off that. But as a listener, are you crazy? It's great. It's, <laughs> it's like, it is it's, honestly, like you 100% do it's it, embarrassing. And you shouldn't worry about the <laughs> no. because, but there's the thing is like, if you're worrying about the artists, you're thinking about it in the wrong way. You would address that question structurally at a macro level, not okay. at the level of individual consumer choice. You declining to use Spotify so that I will get more money will not ever get me another quarter of a penny. Mm, <laughs> it's like, yeah. so there's no reason for anybody to say, well, there's I'm not no going to listen to it on Spotify because they don't pay John or Don. It's, like, it's not like that. It's like, we should build a better system. Exactly. But in the meantime, I mean, this is true with consumerism generally. Exactly. It's like, you know, when I buy paper towels, there's it's a fraught decision. <laughs> Am I going to stop buying paper towels? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to do whatever I can to make the system a little better, you know, and in the music business, that's hard because, you know, the because real pleasure is involved and yeah. it becomes a different, there's a, there's a lot to think about there, but I don't think, and the gatekeepers, you know, I don't think anybody should refrain from supporting Spotify because their pay is bad. I don't think that will help. No, so, but I, f- I feel like the gatekeepers as well, you, you, you're trying to change a no. system where that you need to actually get the gatekeepers out, um, which it's slowly just because of age, those people are just dying. So, you know, you could just yeah. carry on moving it's forward. True, but then again, like, like Spotify has its own, like it has playlists and stuff, which oh in some God. genres are massively important. If yeah. you're on one of the playlists, then you will get millions get a of, lot of And if you're not, then mm. you will be unknown, right? Without that gatekeeper, uh, it's, I mean, I don't think, I think the internet has shown us the idea that like, you know, we'll go find a bunch of new stuff just on our own. It doesn't work like that. Some some types of gate, gatekeeping are healthy if you trust the gatekeeper. You know, just what you have to do is find a guy who's got a good gate. You know. Yeah, yeah. But then, how do you? What about the touring life? Because obviously, that is what I really find. I mean, I find a lot of things fascinating. But what about then the <laughs> touring structure and the business side of that? Do you feel is a little bit flawed? Um, I mean, I know that there's a lot, but especially just with you, you've toured with so many different formations of your band, solo, duo, full band, and you've toured so many countries. I mean, like I went on Setlist FM this morning because I was like, I wonder where John's gone. And there's so many countries around the world that you visited. So what about the business do you feel is slightly like it's it's. Well, it's funny. So you say you say that, and and it's true. I've been to like I think I can list them. I've been to you know, Canada, the U.S., um, Australia, uh, England, I saw Ireland. That earlier. Wait, hold on. England, Ireland, Scotland, <laughs> Germany, Holland, Austria once, um, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Poland. Um, I feel like oh, France, Belgium, um, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, but and Italy, you went those? to Italy as well. Apparently. It, well, only one time. I, I we were in Italy for like fourteen hours. Okay, right? but that counts. I, I, I didn't get to have din- when we were in Italy. I did not get to have dinner. I didn't oh, have no. one meal in Italy. So, oh my god! <laughs> I'll be mad about it for the rest of my life. So, no, but you'll um, just we have to on. go back. That's it. That's well, but the thing is, they don't. We're unknown in Italy. If we go to yeah. Italy, when we go someplace, we have to get paid. Uh, we, yeah. have, we have to offset at least the cost that of cost. travel. Mm-hmm. And most of us are parents in the bus now, so it can't just be that. It's like we're not touring to see the world, right? We're touring to work. It's our labor, right? And so we have to get paid. And in Italy, 
we're generally unknown. So we, the chances of us, like Peter, actually my bassist, he gets to go to Italy to write about cars because he has a second line writing for Motor Trend and oh, that's car amazing. driver. Auto he week. should go to South yeah. Africa for that. My friend does it for Cars uh, he Magazine. Might. He's like he's been to Daytona and he's been <gasps> to Sicily amazing. to write about Lamborghinis. It's awesome. So, oh, he sounds um, cool. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's okay. great. Oh, you should totally talk to Peter. He's extremely cool. Um, but uh, but yeah. But what you notice about these countries we're talking about is they're all essentially. I mean, Australia. I don't want to say essentially. Australia is not Europe, and New Zealand is not Europe. No. But I don't. I've never been to the African continent, right? I've never been to India, right? I've never been. Um, I, I, I get to go to places where they speak English mainly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and and that's you know, and the thing is, like, I was listening to a bunch of. Um, uh, Middle Eastern music uh, earlier this week, and music is such a, a gigantic world, and it's it's a massive shame that we sort of haven't made the conversation between the music of different nations more central to our oh, listening habits. Don't right? get me started. So of other don't even get tour. me started. <laughs> I mean, think about think about when 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 uh, people quote discovered Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. Do you remember this mm-hmm. guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a Kowali, right? He'd been yeah. doing it forever, right? And then people suddenly went, oh, this guy's amazing. And then he could come over here. The guy had been making amazing music for 20 for so years, long. 30 years at that point. Mm. And, uh, and once in a great while, there'll be, you know, somebody manages to, to punch the bubble, like, whether it's like uh, Luis Miguel uh, uh, with, with music in Spanish can get his foot in. But there's so much amazing music from Mexico and from North, and from North Mexico and South Texas, right, that we don't listen to if there's a language barrier, right? And it's not even just language barrier because we so often listen to music where we don't, we're not focusing on the words at all. Why wouldn't we exactly. listen to music in languages we don't speak? It doesn't matter. Music is its own language, and you, the likelihood that you're hearing them say something hateful and horrible that you don't want to participate in is very, very slight. Well, it's <laughs> people so, are scared of uh, the unknown. I mean, I, I am within my own, within the issues that I have within myself that I work on every day. I'm scared of the unknown, and I have that fear of what's going to happen if I do this, what's going to happen if I don't do this. And the thing is, what's you know, people don't want to find out about certain things unless it either comes from a reputable source or it comes, you know, it's right in front of you. It's my whole concept that I, I always talk about, and I, I'm sorry for anyone listening that has read everything I've written about it, but the concept of world music and how that term is so archaic, um, it yeah. it. it absolutely kills me that I have to go to get where I come from. I've got to go into an American record store and go to a sign that says world music. And I, so I can't get my Miriam Makeba vinyl. I can't get my, you know, I can't get any of the vinyls that I would normally get back home in a normal section under the genre. I have to go to you know, an extra section that says world music. It's like, it just doesn't. Think, so electronic music though, this is something interesting to me. Last time, didn't we talk about DJ Spoko? Oh, yes, we did. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. So, well, DJ Spoko, though, in electronic music, that's one genre where those barriers of access mm. have really been melted, right? Like South African dance artists, DJs, have a much better chance of, of touring the world and playing in Goa or playing in, you know, uh, in Spain or whatever than the well, South they, African singer-songwriter. Sure, right? sure. singer-songwriter is pretty much going to be limited to their own country and places where they where they not only speak the language but understand phrase. Yeah, you know, that's it's like a really a, good Reggae point. is kind of a miracle that reggae got as popular as it did because I listen to a lot of reggae and like a lot of the time, unless you're really, really conversant with Rastafarianism, the concepts that they're talking about 
that are that inform everything they're saying are not familiar, right? But but well, reggae and music that? had such yeah. What's that? There, there, there's yeah, nothing wrong with appeal. unfamiliarity as well. Like I feel like why do I need to listen to? Sometimes I like listening to music that pushes me in a way. It's kind of like when I read. I know that you're very into metal. Like I've never even touched on metal. I've never looked at it. I, my husband listens to it. You know, I I can't even go close to it uh, because I wasn't grown up. I I wasn't brought up with it. Um, so I like reject that, and I so I understand <laughs> how. And, and that's strange, and I'm admitting it only to you, and also to whoever will listen to this. I feel this. Shit. Oh no. Um, but you know what I mean. It's it's a scary thought sometimes to delve into something that doesn't sit well with you. You know, there, there's there's a certain, yeah. and it isn't this intellectual bias like, oh, you need a certain ear to appreciate classical, or you know, you need a you need to have lived around the world to understand world music. I don't think world music is much more accessible because the basis of all of those drums that you are hearing is what rock music sounds like today. Like you look at West Africa (laughs) and where all that music has come from is, has literally influenced everything we hear today. So somewhere in there, it's not foreign. It's actually the godfather of what you are listening to. You know, it, it makes me, yeah, I've actually felt my heart beating fast. But I think what I was trying to say when I was talking about YouTube was, let's go <laughs> right back. I always see people commenting on your YouTube videos saying, like, I read it. I read one the other day and I was laughing. He said, like, every Mountain Goat's performance should consist of one part music and two parts John banter storytelling. My banter. No, that's... I, well, that's... I'm glad that there are people for whom that is true. But, no, but I, when like, I hear my own banter, even if I like it, even if I think it's a good little story, I go, yeah. John, you got to learn to trim the fat there a little bit. You gotta, you gotta, no, but wait, so this is what I wanted to talk to you about is that I haven't had the experience of seeing you live yet. I've only watched your videos. So hopefully I will see you this year um, when you come. Are you coming to Chicago, by the way? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. We're so going to see each other Yay. Um, anyway, that's, I'm going to chill out for a second um so (laughs) you're the star here you're a really great interviewer and you are absolutely well i'm not i mean i'm not actually because i haven't asked you really any of the things i wanted to ask you yet but that's the whole point that's the whole point if you're asking me a bunch of questions oh what were you thinking about when you wrote this song that is so boring it is so like no i know um, well you have the song you can tell me actually better than i can what what it feels like i can describe to you you know what I had for breakfast that morning, but basically it was like I sat down to work and made a thing. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, and I and I I really do I acknowledge that. But so this thing with the YouTube and then watching you perform is that because then obviously you do get some slack for it, and you just gave yourself some slack for that. Um, but how do you? Why? What makes you comfy? Is that your comfort spot to go up and explain to people how you're feeling in that moment? And let them in a little bit. Like you can't just go into the song. Well, it's. Uh, I mean, I think actually this is uh, this this ties into. Uh, if I remember correctly, one of the things about your show is you talk about people's first gigs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the first rock gig I would have seen was uh, was Randy Newman, right? Oh wow! And Randy Newman is good at banter, right? He's, yes. he's his banter is fairly sparing. He doesn't give big long speeches like I do. But when he describes something, he's he's pretty wry about it, and it sounds like he's usually making it up on the spot rather than 
like I saw Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen also had a great banter style, but none of it was improvised. He, he had little, little prose poems he would recite before a song. Um, uh, and, and the thing is, but they sounded spontaneous. If you saw him two nights in a row, you go, oh man, I thought you were making that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I thought that um, was real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the thing, and it is actually, you know, I thought about that a lot with Leonard Cohen because a friend did see him two nights running, mm. and she said the second time, well, you know, he was just as good, but but he gave all the exact same, the same song things. intros. Yeah. Well, and I was like, well, did, does that diminish the quality of the intro? Not really. Those were those are amazing. The one he gave for "Ain't No Cure for Love" was this thing where he talks about Jesus dying on the cross, and uh, and it was an amazing piece of writing and performance. And why do we as audiences demand that, that it also be improvised? Absolutely. <laughs> like no, why, absolutely. What, you know, why, why do yeah. we say it's not as good if it wasn't coming from your, from, you know, your medulla? <laughs> <laughs> your medulla, I've got it. Yeah, no, totally. I, I hear that. But I mean, I don't blame anybody for obviously doing that. I totally see his side of the of that as well oh yeah he's there to perform well, i mean one side of that is like look if you paid 45 dollars to get in do you want whatever i happen to be thinking of tired and possibly drunk in front of you <laughs> after four nights of week right four nights of work or do you yeah. want a thing that i actually gave some time and energy and thought to and that i revised right and that i've put and labor I, into exactly. and now it's worth sharing mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but no people place this big value on spontaneity uh that that i mean there's a whole different conversation but um but yeah, so so I saw Randy Newman wow. do that, and um, and I think probably listening to Lou Reed's live "Take No Prisoners." Uh, I was a giant Lou Reed fan when I was fourteen. I bought every slab of Lou Reed vinyl I could find, mm -hmm. and I had I mean I had so many, and I had actually a bootleg called Liquid Air, which was from the live "Take No Prisoners" run at the bottom line. Uh, but but I didn't have "Take No Prisoners" because finding the studio albums in eighty eighty one where I lived was hard. Like I, it, like I heard, I knew so much Lou Reed before I heard a note of the Velvet Underground, right? I, I, you could not find the Velvet's records where I was at. Uh, or if you could, it was only White Light, White Heat, and it was $22. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's probably it, right? so expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was when they finally put the Verve Banana album on the nice price for four ninety nine. <laughs> that was when I was able to finally hear it. Right? So, but, um, but yeah, so I finally get live Take No Prisoners and sort of famously... He banters for like 21 minutes in Walk on the Wild Side, and he never gets around to singing the song. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, like the band plays that fierce groove. like It's really lovely, right? And he just sits there talking. He'll start to sing a verse, and he'll say, Jackie, Jackie Curtis. She was really something. <laughs> like, and he just – and I loved it. Lots of people think that album was kind of a joke. But to me, it was like, I know the songs already. Take them someplace you know, Somewhere open else. them up for mm. me somehow, right? Mm. Now, these days, I really challenge that idea. I go, well, no, how about everybody plays the songs so well and focuses so hard on their job that it needs no introduction, right? The, the song goes to place all by itself. The Grateful Dead, I listen to tons of Dead. They have very little banter, and the banter they have is terrible, mm. right? And it's like every time Bob Weir opens his mouth to speak, it's like, Bob, don't talk. Just play your guitar. Cut it Leave out. Yeah. Along, right? <laughs> Because his banter sounds bitchy. He always sounds like he's complaining and and uh, and and like. Yeah, it's, it's not sprightly. When they do banter, they always sound a little like they feel like the audience is kind of in their way. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> no. it's funny. I, well, the thing is, for what they do, that's that's both hilarious because the audience is a vital part of it, but also I get it because for them to explore, they need to sort of ignore the audience. Mm -hmm. like they need to exactly. sort of you have disappear. To... Exactly. And so it's it's mm. interesting, but. 
but yeah, so I, I got, I had these influences, um, of, of hearing people introduce their songs and thinking about them. And it just seems very natural to me to do. Although I have tape of our first appearance outside of Southern California in uh, videotape in mm-hmm. San Francisco. And I don't say nothing. I, really? I, I keep, I, no, I sit down, I say hi, we're the mountain goats, right? And, uh, and then I play a song and then I play another song. And then once or twice I say, this song is called Alpha Incipiens. I say, thank you after every song. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> But that's it. I mean, but like, like the the nudge, like where you're looking up over your, you know, above your glasses, like thank you. <laughs> I actually didn't have glasses at that time. Oh, okay. I, I didn't go glasses, so I was like 32. So. Oh my gosh, was that just because your eyes got bad, or were, were you wearing, uh, um, what are they called? Oh my gosh, my brain contact has got lenses. contact lenses. <laughs> no, I. So my eyes used to be really super good. I'll never really know when they got bad I mean, because I didn't notice, right? Yeah. And I was actually in, I was on tour and a guy, back when I was touring solo and we were very small, I would have to arrange for rides from the airport and stuff with, usually with the promoters or with, or with college radio people. And, uh, and I was going to Portland. I was excited to go there because I used to live there, right? And, uh, and the guy picked me up and we're driving and talking and he says, okay, well, we're coming up on the Burnside Bridge here, and I said, "Why well, you can read that? That's what? like you <laughs> That's must have great away. eyes." No, no, you must need glasses. It's real clear. And I was like, "Not only glasses, I have good eyes. It's, you must have great eyes." <laughs> and, and he says, "No, I, it's uh, you probably need glasses." And I went, "Huh? Uh, I'll be damned." And so I went and got tested, and I totally needed glasses. And wow. it's like, I wonder how long I had you not needed been them seeing for. much. I know. I mean, I'm exactly <laughs> the same. I moved to Israel, and only when I couldn't see the number on the bus coming towards me is when I went, yeah. huh, hang on, why Why is it all blurry? And for so long, I was that horrible, arrogant arsehole, like, hey, hey, I have the best eyesight, <laughs> 20-20 vision, baby, and then landed up, I had to have glasses as well. And it's so awkward. I can't get used to them. I leave them everywhere. Um, no, I tried I'm, contacts. I'm I can't stand them. I can't stand them. I haven't them. even I tried it. Them. Like I've not even attempted to go near. I mean, I can touch my eye. I'm not freaked out about the eyeball. I actually find it very, very soothing and gooey. Um, but I just certainly can't put something in there. And then no, no, I'm not interested. But so I tried it. My wife wears contacts, but like I tried contacts, and for one thing, because I needed glasses until later in life. Yeah. Getting used to putting in contacts would be something, but also at the time. I was working AM shift, 6.45, so oh that meant God. rolling out of bed at 6.15 and, and jabbing yourself in the eye repeatedly because mm-hmm. I was new to doing it, right? Mm-hmm. For 15 minutes before going to work, I was like, nah, <laughs> it's not going to happen. What were you doing at 6 with the AM shift? What was that? Uh, working with children, uh, that's a uh, uh, job with uh, children in a residential setting, uh, children who for whatever reason, couldn't live with their folks. And uh, there's oh, a wow. six-bed house, then a seven-bed house. I was getting them to school. Like, you'd get them at 645 yes. and fix their breakfast and uh, get them, help them get dressed, you know, wow. make sure they're ready for school, give them med- usually medication and uh, and get them off to school. And then mm. in that kind of house, then you'd be on the grounds to go get them from school if something went wrong and stuff mm. like that. When was was this before you started uh making music or was this kind of no this was around the time tangent. i was writing all hell west texas okay okay wow how did that but i mean looking back at that now does that give you any sort of feeling looking back at how drastically different your life is, your life is like what did that what did that teach well that you? wasn't that wasn't just a phase it's like that was part of 
my training is in nursing. I went and I, I had a, a psychiatric technician's license and I worked in that field for several years, three or four. And then I went back to college because I thought I needed to get an English degree and I let my license expire. Oh, so shit. from 93 to 97, I think. Then I was sort of, I uh, worked, worked for a record company at one point and I made some money off touring for the most part. I was just not making any money. Yeah. And, uh, uh, what did I, when did I, I think it was in 97. I, I would come bring home a little something from tour, but uh, after 95, I was in college from 91 to 95, mm-hmm. 95 to 97. I'm sort of starting to try and make a go of it at music, but it was not producing enough money to pay rent. So, uh, so I went back into psychiatric nursing, mm-hmm. but by then I was living in Iowa and in Iowa, one, my license expired and two, that type of license had never been uh, one that was used in Iowa anyway. Right? Oh so, gosh. Okay. So I worked as a as an aide, as an assistant. I never knew that. But that's my I mean that's my training. I still think of myself as a nurse. That's my job. Like this is, this is the other thing I do. I so and you I mean you're also a writer as well and you've written such wonderful books. Um I loved that 33 and a third by the way. That was really just Thank you. Amazing. I actually bought a new 33 and a third just the other day and I'm really excited to get yeah. to it. Have you seen it? So it's the, the Mario Brothers uh, soundtrack one. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah. No, it's oh, the soundtrack so to Koji Kondo's Super Mario. I'm going to be very, it's by Andrew Sharkman. I'm extremely excited. Thinking of yourself as a nurse and starting out and being in that and being an aide and being uh, that for that person for, for, for people in need and then going into something which is quite... It's not, I mean, making art is quite selfish, right? You, you, you essentially are making it for yourself. Um, well. But obviously you're not, you personally might not be, but there's so many songs in your catalog that have become embedded in people's hearts. So I feel like it's definitely not, you're not making it just for yourself. You are making it for other people. But how have those earlier experiences given you a perspective on your your art and your music and almost the importance of that. You know, I, I have to. I know you're going to think that guy. He, he sure does feel a need to kiss my ass. But I'm telling you, like people ask that question a lot of different ways, but they never actually get it phrased in a way that that leads me to a place where I have anything interesting to say. Oh, I That is a good way of asking it. Well, like, I feel uh, like is, it's important because it, it does inform me. It, absolutely, everything from our past does. But I feel like specifically yeah. for you and all the things that you write about and the way that you write, you know, in your novels and in your songs, um, how much of that is? How much of that seeps into it? I mean, the thing is, I think, and I mean, I think this is true with with probably every aspect of everybody's life too, but in art, you get a chance to look at this question, right? That, that all of your experiences feed into an impact and influence or whatever word you want to use to describe, help decide the shape of the decisions you make, right? Whether they're small decisions about what to eat for breakfast or large decisions about what you want to do for a living, right? All your experiences inform all those decisions. If you're making art, you know, then the decisions you make, instead of being life decisions, they're in this confined field of the of the piece of art you're making, right? Mm-hmm. And but still, you don't have to be writing autobiography for your life experiences to be informing that. Um, and I think about that a lot. I mean, it's like I think about that when I'm writing. I, I notice which characters, if I'm, and it can drive me up a wall if I'm trying to write characters sort of outside my usual comfort zone. Now, you really want to do that, 
but you also have to say, how well do I know these characters' lives? You know, am I equipped to talk about their lives in in a real way? And that doesn't mean, like, like if you follow that thought to its logical conclusion, then you can't write science fiction. Yeah. Because you don't know what it's like to live in space. Exactly. And I think it's ridiculous, right? And I think it's ridiculous no matter what, but I do think what it means is the demands on you, depending on what experiences you're talking about, are very high, right? Like, you have to really be conscious of that. Hi, Moses, how's it going? (laughs) <laughs> my younger son is home. How's it going? Oh my gosh, his name um, is Moses. Hi. Yes. Hi, Moses. <laughs> he can't hear you. Oh, no. Damn. Anyway. He, let he, him, has, he has let dashed him. off. He's home from school. Oh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so in the micro space there, it, like, you're not, you're not writing about your experience as a nurse. Mm. But the experiences you have, like for me, I think, of actually being with people when, like, when I was working at one point in short-term psych care, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also this actually, the long-term stuff plays into this. I'm thinking of my time with adults, not children, right? Yes. Where somebody whose brain was working just fine, right? And and then at some point it doesn't, right? And because we're talking about, you know, mental health and chemical processes, that can be very dramatic when it happens, right? Somebody can have what they call a psychotic break, but it can be much different from that. It can just mean a person starts acting differently and their friends all start treating them differently. And they feel like, why are my friends treating me differently? Because they're not conscious of uh, that. that shift. They yeah. haven't really noticed that their behavior is different. Or maybe they do notice that their behavior and thought processes are different and they feel very funny about it. And they want, you know, there's, there's so many ways that your brain can sort of, I don't like to say turn on you, but, but, you know, can become your relationship to yourself by means of your thought processes mm-hmm. can change a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and detached, uh, well, yeah. being with people during that time, right. When you are a nurse, a psych nurse and being around people who are facing these things that have huge, huge impacts on, on every choice they're going to make going forward about how they live their lives, you know, and, and every choice that might be taken away from them if they, you know, like I worked with people who were being brought in on 72 hour holds uh, by the police. Right. Mm. And, uh, and the reason police were bringing them in is because they had maybe become very violent, you know, and, uh, uh, but they also, but when that happens, like that sounds like the police are just some benevolent force, but that's usually not the case. Right. When the police have brought them in, the full force of the law has been brought on a person whose relationship to reality is fragmented. It's fra- right? it's a- exactly. So, and crumbling. Yeah. yeah. Like we can't, we can't really imagine how, utterly terrifying it must be to have the cops come at you when you're psychotic. You have, exactly. You, know, you have like, no idea what's even going on. Yeah. You've lost. Yeah, no, I think about this every day because like the parents of, of children who, you know, who are, have some frayed relationship to the normal world. You know, there's a house that says, you know, I think it's in Nevada or California somewhere. I've seen pictures of where the mother has spray painted on the house. It's like, my son is disabled and he cannot, understand you when you tell him to raise his hands in the air right i mean imagine imagine being that mother imagine being that son okay so i was around people in these sorts of circumstances for a long time i'm not them right i'm not writing from their perspective but i come to see the world in a certain way you know as having these perils but as also having you know i also get to see people like back when I was working in long-term care, I could see people snap out of it. After three or four days, they get a little stabilized. Now they've been sleeping in the same bed for three or four nights. And you see them emerge from the fog of homelessness and psychosis and, and not having access to the medications that they needed and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they regulate. And being able yeah. to, and they reg- well, and, but what you see as a writer there, and this is not, I'm not saying then you go, oh, now I've got something. Right? It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's, but the what that leaves 
what you take with you from that is sort of a consciousness of ways of relating to the world that informs your writing. I don't know if that was a question initially. <laughs> no, it really does. And I feel like it's your approach to everything, really. It makes so much sense now. And I'm so glad that you told me. Maybe I just didn't do my research well enough. But I'm glad that you told me that that is what you did. Because I certainly feel like having that empathy and understanding for people around you, especially when you're on tour and especially when you're a musician. Yes, but on the other hand, on the other hand, and this it's is a dangerous. problem that many musicians run into, mm -hmm. you have to absolutely not put yourself in a position where like everybody is like, you can't, I'm not a nurse out there. Mm. I am not a nurse. Right? <laughs> like, I may think of myself that way, but I'm not, right? I'm a performer. My job is to stand up and perform. And the end of that job is when I say thank you, good night, right? That's, that's the end, right? And the idea that there's a further work to do after that is pretty weird. And it's like, I think there's, you know, when we we're talking about publicly lived lives earlier is like, you know, it is probably best for a performer to disappear at that moment, yeah. even though everybody then there's people want more and the performer also wants to share more. You feel like you've created a connection there, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but it's a, it's a, it's a weird space. You know, it's like, there's no, there's no directions for that space. Yeah. And no, no, absolutely no guideline. But then, so like another thing weirdly that I read on YouTube was that some guy told the story, which I thought was amazing about how he bumped into you after one of your shows with his girlfriend and he, you gave him a chocolate bar that you didn't want. <laughs> so <laughs> That I didn't want. No, uh, apparently, I mean, I, I don't know if somebody like stole a chocolate bar and this was his way of like feeling validated and feeling better about themselves. But apparently no, that's this. the I'm story. Only, I'm only taking issue with the, with the characterization of there ever having been a chocolate bar that I don't want. Right. <laughs> 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 I'm pretty sure I want them all. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so first, so I have I a lot to unpack was, there. There was, probably a, there was probably a lot of chocolate. I have, we have chocolate bars on our writer. So like the, the catering backstage has chocolate. That's interesting. Well, yeah. But wait, so I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I know I I I hear you. I'm more of like a potato potato crisp chip type of person. Um, but I get you on the chocolate front. Well, we but have so, those too. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, your writer has has stuff has anything you might need after you have been traveling for six for to ten so hours. So long. Oh uh, my gosh. Now the problem, well, the thing is, once you get on the bus, though, mm. like those riders are for really when you're in vans, right? Mm. So you, mm. you you know you, you which can you can't take that much of that on the bus by day three we should be canceling our rider because we've already loaded everything we need to eat <laughs> onto the bus right? and so it's totally the case that you'll be like on week three of tour going wow those chips were from Pennsylvania these chips have traveled far but wait so how do you how do you are you you're not are you vegetarian. Like how yes. restricted is your diet? Are you vegan? I'm not vegan. I'm, ve I'm vegetarian. So then, because that, I mean, it's much easier. I'm also vegetarian. It must be, it's, it's much easier to travel. I don't f have any issue with it. I feel like most places now you can get something decent. It may not be fresh, yeah. but you can get something decent that isn't, you know, meat-based. But how do you then make sure that your energy, because I also know a lot of people eat for fuel, some eat for pleasure, some for both. But especially when you're on tour and you're trying to rest and relax with your little light machine when you're going to bed. So how do you make sure that your diet and everything, because that all affects your mental health and your mental state. Yes, I so, agree. So how do you make sure that you are eating for fuel and also comfort because you're away from home, you're in a different city that, you know, you don't know. Um, so how do you make sure that you're eating the right things? 
Like, how do you control yourself? Well, you don't. I mean, <laughs> basically, well, you don't. Is the thing you, you like? You, uh, it, it never even occurred to me to think about those sorts of questions until I've been doing it for like ten years. Right? Yeah. It's like you, when you get out there, you eat what's in front of you, mm. right? When you're first touring, like if there's free food, you go insane. Right? Yeah, you go, you go oh, nuts. Boy, <laughs> good food, is this? but like in our where we're at right now is like you try. I'm trying so hard. Last time, what did I bring and not do last time? Because, yeah. like, in order for me to, to be eating well, I need to be uh, regimented about it. Like, mm-hmm. if I don't eat the same thing for breakfast every morning, I will start eating bigger and bigger breakfast. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I love a giant breakfast. I love to eat. I just, I love food, period. Yeah. Uh, food is, me too. what a magnificent world yeah. we live in. We <laughs> eat all this food, you know? And so, uh, but at the same time, I'm a performer and I'm getting older. And so it becomes, you know, you, you tend to keep more of the weight on you as you age. And I have to jump around at night, right? So I got to be trying to, keep it real and stuff um but i didn't start trying to exercise or eat well on tour until just the last couple of years really um and when you become vegetarian you're touring and you eat a taco bell pretty much every day seven seven layer burrito uh, you can get a taco bell and that's your veg food right it's like i won't set food in a mcdonald's i don't care what their veg thing is but taco bell is vegetarian more it's like go there they have a taco bell yeah um but now i mean I try. I eat a lot of vegetables. A lot of uh, carrots and celery. We got a little carrot and celery plate, you know, mm. that people buy the thing from Whole Foods or wherever that mm. that is on the on our catering tray. And I I do a lot of that. Um, I will snack on like lettuce, um, and almonds. You know, like nuts. I'm mm. very into. Oh, well, you lived in Tel Aviv, yeah. so you know. Oh, in the Middle God. East, eating nuts is a whole different thing, right? <laughs> I mean, eating anything there. To be honest, like it's like you know yeah. when you know in the Wizard of Oz when. Dorothy, when everything goes from sepia into color, that's like yeah. eating food in the rest of the world versus eating in the Middle East because everything yeah. is so is immediately it tastes like food. Like whatever we well, are eating I'm, now is not real. Like it's a simulated version of food. And you go there and you taste the dairy and the fruit and the vegetables. And <laughs> it's, I mean, my mouth is literally watering. It's a different, it's a different so, life. It's just so you know. It's like it always feels kind of colonial to say what one's favorite of the world cuisines is. You know, and like especially <laughs> no, like, but what like is you're it? saying Indian food. But here's the thing: for me, Middle Eastern food mm. that is my happy place. That oh, is like amazing. if you get it's it's so hard to find good fresh hummus in the U.S. Right? Oh my but God. when you do, if you find a place that does it, I mean, you will literally kill Dude, somebody you, to get you, in the door. No, you don't <laughs> understand. Like I, I didn't really. I grew up on hummus, and I didn't really understand what they do in Tel Aviv. And you go to Tel Aviv, and you sit and you eat it. It's in a bowl. Like it is soup. You, it's oh, hummus. I'm fully aware of this. Hummus I, is I, like the main so, so part. Here's the thing. We had. We had a keyboardist for one tour again, Yuval Samo, and he's from mm-hmm. Tel Aviv. Yeah. And we had, we had hummus on our rider, right, which was always hummus from Whole Foods or whatever. Oh, right? it's the worst. And yeah. Yuval shows up and goes, why, why is there hummus here? And I said, oh, well, because uh, it's for you. You know, it, it, that's on our rider. And he, yeah. says, he says, well, hmm. And he takes a giant bite. Like yeah. And he goes, yeah, but this is this is not hummus. No. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, it's pretty good hummus. He goes, no, uh, I mean, this isn't, I'll eat it, but it's not hummus. Right? Yeah. And and he did this like we played at a place where they made the hummus fresh in the kitchen, and he said, yeah, you know, close. Like, it was like, yeah, dude, you're having a very high standard, and I sort of made it my my mission to find a hummus <laughs> that you've all would sign off on, right? Oh, that's and amazing. We, I found two in the U.S., and mm-hmm. he said, there's two places in New York. He said, one is called Time. And I forget what the other one was, um, but uh, there was. He said there were two places in New York he would vouch for. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Wow. I went for a walk before okay. the show, and I saw a place like a you know a, a falafel looking place. I mm-hmm. went in, and I ordered the hummus, and I was like, I'm going to grab some hummus and go back across the street to play the show, mm. right? And it took them 20 minutes to make it for me. Now, yeah, of course, but... I'm an American, and I'm sitting there going, boy, it takes so long making my hummus. Yeah. <laughs> so, Why do you do it, but, making but my hummus? Started, yeah. <laughs> but somewhere around minute 15, I start to go, either they have forgotten my order, <laughs> or or they're doing something very real back there. Yeah. You know? And they got it to me, and like, they, well, well they, they brought it out. And then I saw them pour oil on it and sprinkle uh, uh, a little bit of um, uh, chili powder on it, mm. right? And and it was very, very loose. It was very soupy. And I brought it back across the street. And I just set it down, you know, I, and uh, I didn't say anything. And you've all saw it. He said, this looks legit. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah, no, it, it took him it took him forever to make it for me. That mm. is unbelievable. No, but it's yeah, really, so it's he, a thing. It's a thing. Like, it's so hard to find. Like, in Chicago, I found one place that does it okay-ish. And I've had to settle. Is it, near, is it the place that's near the, um, it's near the, the Vic? Um... I don't know. I've just moved here. Maybe like, I don't know. It's called, it's like a chain. It's it's a chain of falafel places. Oh, really? And it's, no, and it's really not bad. And it's called something. Sultan's, Sultan hmm. something. Sultan's Market. It's a very well-known, it's, it's quite well-known here. And also, I'm, I have to say, just on a side, a side note, thank you for saying hummus and not hummus. Like American. <laughs> well, hey, you got some hummus. I, I took I took Hebrew for a year in college. I oh, you did. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of that story that you said once, which I remember seeing ages ago, where you wrote um, Hebrew eleven forty on a bus. Right? I don't know if that's true. Oh yeah, I did. I wrote that. That was on the tour bus. Actually, was that the Uval tour? Mm, I, no, I don't think so. But yeah. Uh, but but yeah, no, I re- he was on before he was on a bus for sure. Yeah, that's so funny. But yeah, so I found, but I also make my own, and I have to say, I'm proud. So I will. I'm you... proud of mine too. I've gotten there. The thing is, we I should mean, have like a hummus the... off, you know, like. <laughs> but the secret, my, my therapist is also she's from Haifa. So, oh, amazing! Um, but, oh, uh, I love Haifa. But here's the thing: is is the secret to Middle Eastern food and the secret to real Mexican food, which we don't usually get a lot of in the U.S., mm. is to- like. Absolutely obsessive freshness of ingredients, right? That's mm. the that's the thing. You're not you're not serving it to somebody six hours after you make it, mm. right? Mm. It's coming to you exactly in the in the bloom of its, you know. And like that doesn't mean it's better than another cuisine. Like you know, in French cuisine, I think that's less important than than the amount of time that is spent making it, mm. right? It's like the freshness mm. is good. And even you in France, you do tend to get good fresh vegetables, which is amazing. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I think it really has to do with like how much time was the cook able to spend in the kitchen? You yeah, know? no, of but with, course. I think with a lot of Middle Eastern cuisine, it's like when you have a fresh falafel, like it does not even compare. Like, no, it's like this know, pillowy, delicious goodness of really complex oh, it's flavors. So it's, it's, it's barely, it's like, it's so, you, <laughs> it's it makes you want it. more. Whereas, you know, yeah, oh, you're, you're talking about language. That is my favorite cuisine. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. But so talking about like obviously traveling around and touring to all these different places, was there a place that you toured? Because I think we listed them, you listed them all earlier. Was there a place that you've toured that you really felt like this is exactly, like you mentioned the German crowd. So was right. there a space that feels similar to that where you were like, this audience absolutely gets me. I am, I feel one with my music, one with them. 
Like, how often does touring to new places do that for you? You know, that's such a good question because, like, I think when you are a younger touring artist and you go someplace and you don't connect, mm. then you say, well, this audience doesn't get me. But it's not like that. It's that audiences have, have different ways of relating to you. Now, sure, there's some who, like, you never quite find the frequency, right? You don't share the space together. But, like, I mean, it's actually the same from city to city in the U.S. Like, some audiences are going to see you and they want to go absolutely ape. They want to have several you know, several glasses of beer or whatever, and they want to get all lit up and they want to sing along and this and that. Other audiences are like reverent and they're listening. That is not a better or worse way of relating, right? It's like there's just different ways of relating, right? And to some extent, when you tour, if you feel like they're not getting you, a better question is, how are they understanding this? What's What's the way they're coming at this, right? But again, you do, especially as American, you tend to privilege the hard pop, right? Yeah. Privilege if they, you know, if they jump, right? Mm. Um, but I mean, I've never played Japan, and everybody tells me Japanese audiences are, are, are quiet to a fault. I always wonder if it's a stereotype. But some musicians go, it's amazing. Like, you can hear yourself think and play, wow. and you, you know, and you, you, you get to this space that you can't get to when people are distracted, you know? Um, but at the same time, it's like in Barcelona, the first show Peter and me ever played in Barcelona, the audience was quiet between songs, and then as soon as we stopped playing, they just would explode. <laughs> right? it was like, yeah. And they found this balance that was so perfect, you know, that like I really wound up in this amazing discursive. I, I've seen clips of my banter from that because I was yammering on. I was just. <laughs> well, and, you were and, excited. Like, was, I get it. You were excited. Yeah, it was like. So, but but having said all that, um, in Perth, Australia, mm. the first time I played, from the first time I played there for like you know, a hundred people the first time. It was like, so people in Perth are kind of getting it. <laughs> kind of, they seem to, to, you know, that, that Perth is amazing. London, if you can't, London, we just have incredibly spiritual experiences in London, you know, uh, wow. which like, I know plenty of bands who've gone to London. I, I didn't connect. I used to have that experience in London where I'd feel like, you know, even when people said it was good, like, yeah, but we didn't really, get air you know but now in london man the last few shows just what makes them different what makes them different to shows here in in the Um, states well no i'm just just naming you were naming in the world because chicago this is the thing i feel funky talking about chicago with an interviewer from chicago but legendarily for us chicago audiences just seem to absolutely lock in at this very like this level of historical understanding and some, some of this is to me this is super interesting the first place I played off the West Coast in this country was Chicago. Right? Oh, wow. We, me and Rachel had played, we had played San Francisco once or twice, and that was it. We had, otherwise, we'd play L.A. and Claremont in Southern California. Our label was in Chicago. We got the opportunity to come out and play two shows, one in Columbus and one in Chicago. And I think Chicago was the first one. I forget. It might have been that we played Columbus first, but that would have been like a coffee shop, right? In Chicago, we played at the Empty Bottle. Yes. Right? And we, we were third on the bill, right? We were no... There were like 40 people there to see us, but that was it, right? But all 40 of those people gave me 100% of what they had, right? And, and maybe it was 20. I don't know. But like but the vibe like we had was just like, wow, yeah. imagine Chicago. Who knew that like this place was so enthusiastic? And uh, and the next time we came back, like a year later, it was more, right? And like the first show, that was 1994. So wow. I've been playing Chicago for almost 25 years. And uh and man, I should find out when the anniversary of that '94 show is because it was summer of '94. But uh, but you wrote the intro- yeah, didn't like, you write the introduction? Just thinking now, you mentioned the empty bottle. You wrote the introduction to the book that came out I like did. two years ago. Yeah, about the venue. 
That's oh. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like it's an immensely spiritual, historic spot for us. And so, but but I always feel like you know. So most of the people at our Chicago shows. Hi, Roman. How's it going? I'm, I am talking to Lior. Her name is Lior. It's <laughs> her, and I know your mouth is full of food, buddy. I'm not going to put you on with a mouth full of food. Oh no, he can come <laughs> on with a mouth full of food. Hello. <laughs> you want to say hello to Lior? Okay, uh, Roman's going to say hi. Okay. Hi, Roman. How are you? Good. What are you eating? What are you doing? I'm I'm in the closet with jam. Oh my gosh! What jam? I'm a it was a cracker jam. <laughs> All right, can you say bye, buddy? I gotta get on. Bye. Bye. <laughs> it was it was a cracker jam. Oh my <laughs> god! That is the best thing ever. There's not other types of jam in the world. It's just cracker jam. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. So how old so, yeah, Roman? So, like, Wait, these, I'm not you finished these... with your son. How old is Roman? Roman seven. Oh my god, he's got a really angelic voice. I have to say, I like feel. Oh yeah, he's got a great I voice. I feel really blessed that I got to say hello. His conversational style is fantastic too. It's like he always, "How are you doing?" He always yeah. addresses you. Hi Lear. Hi Lear. It's so adult, but also has a lot of wonder. I love that. That's it's awesome. so funny. So my other son, who talks even more than I do, right? Yeah, but if I try to put him on the phone with you, he would clam up. He wouldn't yeah. say nothing. No, but I get that. <laughs> He's preserving his energy for the people that he, you know, knows. That's familiarity. I yeah. get that. I get that. But so, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the empty bottle and your experience here. Because I have read a lot about that. But obviously, and also counting the amount of shows, I think the... Pre- you're predominantly you've predominantly played at the empty bottle out of most of the venues around the world. I think you've played the um, most times. That, there. that might be right. We played there for a long, long time, and then mm. we even a couple of years ago did did a bottle show. Like we tried, we've always waited as long as we can to yeah. move up. Like you know, because you you form a relationship with a room. You know, like the Knitting Factory in New York. Uh, I played there for the first time in January of '96, and uh, and we kept going back to the Knitting Factory until it was just dumb to play there because the, the thing that happens if you outgrow a room, right? When the tickets go on sale, scalpers will buy most of them, right? And then the only people who can get in to see you are the people who are willing to, to drop a hundred or 200, $300 to see you. Who wants to play for only people who spent a ton of money? money. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you know, I'm not nothing. I mean, I I'm honored that somebody would even think of like spending that amount of money to see us. Mm. But at the same time, if it's you limit your mindset. audience, to, yeah. it really, it, it closes out. You know, people who like, well, look, I, my my concert dollar has to stretch. You know, it's like that's not cool. Um, so that's why you have to move up in venue size. If you like, we played. Me and Peter did three shows at the Bottom of the Hill, which is another club that I have a very special relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and the thing is, they sold out immediately. That makes you feel like a million bucks. But when you see the tickets going for hundreds of dollars, it does not make you feel good, right? And it's not because you're not getting the money. I'm, I get paid fine, you know. But, but it means that you know, plenty of people who would have loved to see the show at the at the price you asked can't get in, Couldn't and that sucks. It. And so you have to move up. You know, people like in New York, a lot of people. Why is everybody playing Terminal Five? People yeah. don't want to go to Terminal Five for whatever reason. Well, yeah. it's because Terminal Five holds a lot of people, right? And yeah, so, exactly. And it's Terminal numbers. Five is really capable of putting on that show, you know, and so. It can be hard to hit the hit the spot. No, no disrespect to Terminal Five, which I've never played in. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, Terminal Five. If you're listening, <laughs> um, John well, I, would I, like I, to I play. Think, I feel like, are we playing there this time? I think I feel like we might actually finally be Terminal Fiving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I form these I form these special relationships with rooms 
uh, and it can be, you know, moving up. I'm not in a hurry to do it. I always wait one extra tour at least, you know, I'll have booking agents going, I think it's time sold out too fast. And, you know, we could have sold more tickets and plenty mm. of people didn't get to get in. Mm. And I'll be like, yeah, but the bottle, man. <laughs> so, uh, and there's still, you know, there's, there's, there's still small rooms that I, that I, that I prefer to go to, but. Um, Is there a place so that you haven't, that you haven't played that you would really love to play? Is there something that is on your list? Like a terminal like a particular five. venue, a particular yeah, a particular venue or even a a, a place that yeah, just something that you really feel like you've always wanted a wanted to play at the Apollo. Yeah, that would the be Apollo amazing. I mean, oh my gosh! I mean, I mean, the thing is, like the Mountain Goats don't—they're doing a lot of rock shows now. But the, but the thing is about the Apollo is like I want to do that, but the Mountain Goats on that stage, you know, I mean, I I think. I think eventually all music is in conversation with all music. You know, that's, that, that, that's so totally true. I don't, but, but at the same time, the Apollo is a historic spot for a certain type of music, right? And for a certain type of audience, right? And that audience is the black audience for black performers, right? It's like, which is different when, those, when, the, when the performers who made the Apollo famous were touring, you know, they weren't always playing to a home crowd. Like many of those performers have to go play to a segregated audience. Yeah, you know? yeah, uh, yeah. Famous stories of jazz musicians not being able to use, not being allowed to use the, the same interest of the club because mm -hmm. they were playing in the South, you know, and or whatever. And so the Apollo is like, like that's just, that's sacred ground for some of the greatest music ever made. You know? And so, so, but at the same time, as a musician, you go, yeah, all that's true. And I really want to stand on that stage. You know, I really desperately want to stand where, uh, you know where uh, uh, where Sam Cooke stood. You know I want to. I want to. I'm assuming Jackie Wilson. Everybody played there. You know, um, but uh, you know I want to. I want to stand in that spot. You know, so the Apollo is a room I'd like to play. Um, what else is there? Um, that's the first one that comes to mind. Apollo Theater. Um, I wanted to play the Beacon, and we did. We opened for uh, uh, Jason Isbell there. Oh wow. Uh, uh, so I got to got to be at the beacon. I would love to headline the beacon. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, when do you start going on tour? When because the album comes out. I know that we spoke about it last time, but I haven't mentioned it this time. It's called In League with Dragons, and yeah. it is wonderful. And I can't stop playing the song called Younger um, because I don't know why. Thank you. <laughs> I just can't stop. It's playing. a drum beat, man. That that oh, beat that Worcester lays God, down. God, it gets me. And I know. Oh, and I know we chatted about it in depth. Um, uh, last time for the print feature interview that I've got coming out with you, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic it's a fantastic album. But so now that you, it's it's a month away. It's a month and two days, I think, or a month. A and month four and days. four days away, two days away. So when do you start going on tour, and how far in advance do you prepare getting these set up? Because everything was so different, you know, from the production side of things, from the the band, how the band are playing. So how do you get it prepared and how long in advance are you going to prepare for this this particular I mean phase? we've been we have been preparing uh for months already mm. it's, uh, it's uh, so it's especially with these with these songs because we used so many more performers and we really went so deep the question of which ones it's funny so me and Peter will have disagreements about this not <laughs> the friendly disagreements but starting with beat the champ intensifying with goths and it's yes. sort of resolving now but i'll be like he'll say we're gonna do this one and i'll go dude that song has 11 people playing on it <laughs> right you know 11 people there's 11 parts of that song mm. and when we, when we strip it down to four 
it's going to, you know, and he'll say, no, we'll just play it. We'll find a way. And, I'll, and, and he gets very enthusiastic. And I'm, I'm, you know, I think every song has a version that we can play, but, but with younger, it's like, you know, I was worried because younger is, is one. I think there's seven people playing yeah. live on that track. Yeah. Like playing you all can at hear the same it. Time. Yeah. But at the same time, at the same time, you can take a lot of that out. And as long as you have Worcester's beat and you have Peter going, bum, 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 right. Doing locked in. It's really, and it tells you something. It's like, you need the rhythm section. That's what you need. You know, everything else on top of that, you can find some way to express what's going on, but it's, it's the drum and the bass <laughs> that, that are, that are carrying much of that. So, and the lyric, I mean, I hope the lyric is fit to play with them, you know, but, uh, but, but yeah, so that, you know, but we do that. We rehearse is the thing. We book time in a club uh, mm. or in a rehearsal space and, uh, and we meet up. It's hard because we we're spread out. I'm here this back in New York again. Um, so, so and yeah, how long will you go? Down. How long will you go on tour for this time? Do you know your schedule um, ahead of like ahead of time? How? Oh how, yeah, no. If okay. you didn't know ahead of time, you're going. Although I think there's probably people who are totally living the life so severely that like they just no, find they, they, are, really they say, are. When do I have to leave? No, they really <laughs> but are. That's not me. Yeah, no. There's people. Oh, no. There's people yeah. who are like, I have no idea where I'm playing tomorrow. I'm calling from a tour bus. Oh no, that's true. That's often yeah. true. But knowing when fine. you're leaving is a different question. Yeah. So if you. <laughs> If you ask me on um, on May first where I'm going to be tomorrow, mm. right? I will have to look at my calendar and I'll have to go. Oh, tomorrow is I'm looking at it right now a day off. Yes, right? cool. Yeah. Right? Um, but uh, but right, all I know right now before tour, you you do try to remember what your leaving date is because it is important to change out your mindset to sort of be. You know, you start leaving several weeks before you leave. You have to sort of like get yourself emotionally prepared to be mobile, you know, to, to not have, you were talking about creature comforts, to not see your family, you know, to feel, if you're me, to feel like you're not contributing as much as you ought to be contributing at home because you're out gathering firewood, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh, so yeah, so I leave on the 26th and I think we're going for a full three weeks this time. Okay. 26th, one, two, three, it's three weeks and, and a couple of days. You know? Wow. And, and, and the, the push and pull you know, performing is ecstasy for me. And it's, and, and I try to create a sort of ecstatic environment, you know, if not ecstatic, you know, an elevated space. It's, you know, a, a, a liturgical kind of, but not in the ceremonial sense of liturgical, yeah. you know, a kind of churchy space. Yeah. And you go there every night and then, you know, then you sort of, it would take two days to recover from a really big one, you know, like from a really like a Fillmore show in, you yeah. know, in San Francisco, mm. you need two days. It's like, but you don't get two days. You go back the next time. You have to go to the next time. But I, that's what I was saying earlier. Cause you're such, as, as I said, you're a big metal fan. I know you're a fan of a lot of different things, but there's something yeah. about w watching a mountain goats gig that kind of produces, I can see for the audience, a similar ecstasy to like the overwhelming waves of that heaviness of the music. And it's, I yeah. don't know, I feel like it's in your musicianship, that like intensity that really radiates, but also the emotional, I want to say tides almost pushing and pulling. It's like headbanging, like you feel it. You really yeah. feel yeah. it. Yeah, why you, headbang? You know. I, I, I whip my head back. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're lying uh, on your back because you, <laughs> you're tired. Well, that's part of it. I mean, I, yeah. I, you, so you haven't seen us live. It's like I really, 
performing is physical for me. It's physical first and foremost. Like the cerebral aspect, it was funny about doing interviews. Like we are talking about dance. At the end of everything, dance precedes all other forms of musical expression, I think. Right? I think dance precedes instruments. I think it probably precedes song, right? It, it, dance is primary, right? And, uh, and I think most music, in some sense, is an expression of dance, right? Uh, the, 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 it's, it's, it's dance finding other ways to express what it is. And, uh, and so dance is something you live in your body, mm. right? It's not something you think about. It's not something you, you say, well, here's what I was trying to say with my dance, right? I mean, like people write about it like that, but that's not what it is. And with music, it's like the same thing. It's like, you know, I'm up there inhabiting my body in this super intense way that, that when we talk about performing in the show and stuff, it is kind of like trying to describe something, a secret right that can only be understood from inside the confines of the right. Sure. Know? Sure. And, and a then, lot of metal yeah. you think about it like that. <laughs> yeah. And also, I was just thinking about that Janet Malcolm book, Two Lives. Um, Gertrude Stein and Alice Tuckler's, they, they there's this like yes. long passage and Gertrude kind of describes this feeling uh, the, describes the feeling of being ashamed or uncertain or, you know, afraid as a writer and then says, like, until someone came along and said yes to it, which I loved. <laughs> so for you, yeah, yeah. I would love to know, just thinking now, who really said yes to you in order for you to do what you do every day? Because you have a lot of different mediums that you turn to. So when did it all shift that you could do this? for a living well but i mean the, the, the seeds of that are planted much earlier than when it happens mm, right it's the people mm. to whom i dedicated wolf and white van debbie vansell rosemary adam and terry neisler right those are uh those are three elementary school teachers uh, who i had uh well two elementary one high school yeah um and uh and these are people who saw you know what i was and uh which I mean, not meaning they saw anything special just saw me as i am right and uh and who, and who celebrated that in some way. I mean, Debbie, I think, I, I think I really got a Debbie Vansell's nerves when I was in the fifth grade. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> she was, she was like, she put that aside. She let me, she let me be the sort of, you know, really wildly over-enthusiastic dragon lover I was, right? Yeah. And Terry Neisler had us keep journals, right? And we had to hand them in. If we didn't want him to read our journal, all we had to do was tell him so, and he wouldn't read it. He would just check to see that we'd written it. Right? Uh, it's hard to understand how how beautiful this very brief moment in American elementary education was. But there were a bunch of graduates from the University of Chicago who came out of school in 67, 68, and they were going to change the world through early childhood education. Right? Not, And that's, some people hear that and think indoctrination, but that's not what it was about. They were just thinking of whole person pedagogical modes, right? They were thinking of like, if we teach the whole person instead of just teaching, here's how you do math, right? Then that person will emerge with a greater sense of what's possible in their world, right? Um, and he was part of that crew. He was graduating in 67, 68, 69 from, from UFC. And, uh, and Terry Neisler was like, like here's something that, that you won't even believe. So, um, the show Roots was airing when I was in Terry's class, right? Yes. You, you know Roots, Alex Haley? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so they had a TV movie of it, which I, I wonder if it's aged very badly or not, but it was a giant event at the time, right? It was like a huge event. And you got to remember how so many of the things we take for granted about, about the discourse around the history of, of race relations in America 
people just didn't openly really talk about them that much, you know, um, in especially white folks in in those days, right? And then here was the story roots to really put the horrors of slavery directly in front of you as best it could, you know, at the time. And uh, and it was on TV every night. It was like, it was a mini series. I forget how many nights it was. We would come to school in the morning at 8.30 and spend the first hour talking about roots. <laughs> it's like, not just amongst ourselves. It's yeah. a led discussion, right? We go, everybody watch roots? I say, well, what'd you, you know, and like, and Terry was making a point of going, this is important stuff. This is a moment that, you know, the conversations are opening up that we wouldn't have been having a year ago in the elementary schools. And so, uh, so yeah, so, so, so that was Terry and then Rosemary. And the thing is like, and making that sort of a space for your thoughts to be about important things, right. To sort of tell a 12 year old is like, you may not have total command of the concepts, but you get to think about them too. You know, you don't have to wait to start thinking about the stuff that's actually important in the world, you know? Yeah. You can, uh, and you that's really what, that. oh man, I get very emotional thing about Terry because he really, he, he valued every child so much. You know, he uh, would tell people, there was one student of his who told him when she was uh, 12, that she was going to be the first member of her family to graduate from college. Right. And he said, I know you will. Yeah. Wow. I mean, especially you know, and, being. Uh, and yeah, she did. I mean, we, so we had a class reunion 30 years later. Oh, wow. And she was there. Oh, my gosh. You know, and she was. Yeah, no, we were all there to, to, to tell him what he meant to us. Because I'm sorry, I'm getting really emotional. Um, so, no, never. Uh, but, I mean, I. Please, like, I'd never apologize. I will get offended if you do. It's just so wonderful yeah, well, no, hearing this. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but so, Terry, and then Rosemary Adam was my creative writing teacher in high school. Mm-hmm. And she was. Similar, but for an older child, right? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, and I told her that I wanted to be a writer, right? I mean, when, before she'd read, I, I guess she had actually read some stuff of mine that I wrote in the sixth grade that we submitted to like some broader pool of something. Uh, but she barely knew me at all when I told her, well, I, I'm going to be a writer. Right? And she said, and she had, she smoked like two packs a day. And she <laughs> said, oh, you are a writer. <laughs> and, and that is a powerful thing to tell a 14 year old who really wants to write well someday, like you're not going to become a writer. You're already a writer, you know? And, uh, and she took, she took my writing very seriously. And when something wasn't good enough, it wasn't that she was harsh about it, but she would say, oh, you, know, you can do better. This is good. You know, it's, it's better than a lot of stuff, but you know, it's like I, this other one is like, she was, she was demanding, but not too demanding. Um, and that's sort of those people in your life, <laughs> the ones who, who see what you're trying to become and and sort of encourage you to head that direction. Uh, those are important people. So who do you feel like, have, have you on tour met anyone who has asked you for similar, uh, asked you for similar guidance about the industry and getting into music or even aspiring writers, maybe? Well, but this is the thing about teachers is like you're not there asking them, right? Mm-hmm. You're in their class. And so... So no, I mean, that's no, I haven't. I mean, there's, there's some people and I wouldn't, that, when I think about that, I don't want to say, well, yeah, here's a guy I helped. <laughs> it's like, no, I it's I more so that. like how approachable is this topic when you are a touring musician and when you are a published writer? Well, it's writer. not because the relationship when you're talking to a person who's a big fan of your work, it's so different. It's you really can't, you can't give advice from that, from that perspective. It's not, you know. Like to be able to do that, you have to be a teacher, which is a higher calling, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's different. It's like, I can't, and especially given how much the industry changes, right? Like I could talk to people about writing 
a little bit, you know, um, but can I tell people how to become successful? No, <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. You know, I mean, my, you know, I have little, little bits of, of stuff, you know, I mean, like, I mean, my whole thing is about, you know, practice, like read, you know, learn how to write an iambic pentameter, right? And people hear that, and they go, that is not even the kind of advice I want. <laughs> well, yeah. that's how it worked for me is like I bought a book called Strong Measures, right? That taught me how to write in strict, you know, I like, I really don't cheat your pentameter. Don't end the line on a feminine ending. Become extremely demanding of yourself, right? That's my kind of advice. When people think about being taught how to write, they're thinking more about the relationship I would have had with Rosemary Adam. But that's somebody I was seeing five days a week. Right. Um, in the context of a class, right. In the context of a life, I had 45 minutes a day with her for two years. Right. And, uh, and that's not you, there's, it's kind of an insult to that process to try and approximate it in a conversation or something like that. And, uh, you know, or even, you know, it's like, you can't use seminars where you do that. It has to be, it's in daily practice. And that's why teachers, it's not one, it's not why, but it's one reason why teachers are, are so special is like, that's an environment whose parameters are necessary for the miraculous things that can happen within it. So then what responsibilities do, this may be a large question and you have every right not to answer it, but what responsibilities do touring artists and, you know, full-time artists have then? Because, you know, you are... Pedagogically? Well, I suppose what I'm thinking is, like, there's a responsibility sometimes as somebody with a platform especially with the nature of the industry as it is, it can be incredibly predatory and very dangerous potentially. Um, but then also there's a beautiful side to it. And I suppose with what you do every day and, and, and what you write about and what you sing about, what responsibility do you feel when you're stepping on stage and about to perform? Mm. Yeah, I do think about that some. Uh, mm. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's a tricky question because, sure. you know, the sort of irritating free speech bros who would say, you only have responsibility to your craft. It's not like they don't have a point. <laughs> it's like their point is good. You know, um, uh, it's not it's not all. It's not everything, you know, but uh, but it's something, um, you know, at the same time, you sort of want to carry yourself well, you, you sort of. But on the other hand, you know, a performer is not afforded the luxury of being a person, right? A performer is, is part mirror and exactly. part icon Absolutely. and all these other things. So if you're thinking about what's my responsibility, there is no me up there. There is no person, right? There is actually a, a totally malleable presence, right? And I mean, it's one of the things that drives me crazy is that like, I really try to present something adjacent to or partially incorporating my actual self. Yes. I think that some of what you get from the mountain goats is you get a guy who are you, you hear me talking, you know, that's me, right? you know, you know, that's me. Yes. Right? And so, and hopefully that gives something to the show that you don't get from other people. Right. Where you, know, but at the same time, like that's so unhealthy. It's like, because it's not possible. It's not actually possible. Now as a quasi pseudo, whatever intellectual, that's very interesting to me. Right. As a person, it's utterly destructive to me. hundred <laughs> percent. Like I should one hundred percent embrace the actual way that most performers have done it, which is like get on the stage, do your job, yes. right? And and that's it, right? You know, it's like um, because the thing is that doesn't mean real emotional experiences don't take place. Judy Garland gave a thousand percent of herself on stage every single night of her life, and uh, 
literally, I mean, I didn't realize at the time she was five years old, but, uh, but does that mean, you know, does the fact that she didn't actually, you know, go to the merch table to sign things, <laughs> you know, and hear people's stories make her stuff less authentic? No, you yeah. know, it doesn't actually make it less authentic. I've stopped going to the merch table lately because That's it's two extra hours of talking to people. And I have, I've had very incredible emotional exchanges there, but I start to think it's like, you know, actually you need to get out of the way of the performance experience. Like let that be all there is that there is to process. I mean, it's amazing that you're saying this because I, w- I almost find that because of the oversharing nature of our culture at the moment and how caught up we all are with the, this necessity and this obsession with oh, it's sharing. Incredibly unhealthy. It's incredibly unhealthy. Sure. It's like it's so, it's so bad. But the thing is, it's a relief that people are starting to notice this. Like, and me too. It's like, I've been on Twitter, you know, sharing much of the stuff and like, you know, but, uh, but in, in, in fact, you know, it's like people have, the thing is that we always blame Twitter about this, but there's an amazing moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the history of film in, uh, Madonna's truth or dare. Have mm-hmm. you seen this movie? Yes. Okay. I love Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a moment where she's with Warren Beatty, mm-hmm. right? Warren yeah. Beatty. I don't know if she was dating or there was hanging out or whatever, but he's at one of the shows and they're having an argument of some kind, right? And uh, and he's there, and the cameras are, are, you know, it's like a multi-camera setup, right? <laughs> like, and they start to argue, and the director or an assistant says, "Hey, Maddie, do you want to do this off camera?" Right? <laughs> and Warren Beatty laughs. He goes, "Does she want to? She doesn't want to live off camera." Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so he has it's this amazing harsh... moment where he yeah. he's like, yeah, "I would like to do this off camera, but of course she doesn't because <laughs> she, she doesn't thinks want it's great it. to live on camera, right?" Well, we're all Madonna now. The Madonna side of that argument won, right? And and the people who are willing to live off camera are fewer and farther between, but they're right. You know, it's like the whole, the world we have built is a toxic cesspool. <laughs> it's like it's not good or healthy. No, and uh, I'm glad and, to hear and, that you've stopped doing that as well because there's so many artists that I talk to and every single person has a different experience. And it's amazing to hear all of their stories about meeting these fans that have, you know, you've literally, you've changed lives. You know, music can do yeah. that. And it becomes this it, this very awkward blur where you're up you're on stage and you're performing and that person is looking at you like they know you because they do they know your heart yeah, they but know, it's, it's so but it's, it's dangerous to discuss yeah. this stuff because like like i met a person at a book signing who had just buried his wife who had died very oh, young right yeah. and he had come to share that pain with me right and there's a huge part of me that feels like the God that made yeah. you made you so that you could be here for this person, you know, mm-hmm. so that you could be that person for him. Right. And, and feels an immense gratitude to be able to afford even the tiniest fraction of relief from what that agony must be like, you know? And so I want to be there for that. And at the same time, I can't, you sometimes you know, can't like I'm, because, because the me that they, that they know is somebody else. It's like, it's not mm-hmm. actually, you know, I mean, it's like, not, it's not like, you know, like well, I'm it's not. A, it's a different version. Gr- yeah, it's just different. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a great or bad person. I'm just a person. <laughs> it's like, and uh, you know, but at the same time, it's like those those experiences I had for a very long time in meeting people for about a decade or so. You know, I had many moments that I'm very grateful to have had. You know, and I'm not saying I'm I, I haven't like put a hard line on going out to to meet people because yeah. it can be very rewarding. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, it totally is. It exists in this bizarre 
dynamic of fame and and the relationship between writer and reader and you know it's all very you know a lot of people like to just blame it on late capitalism or whatever but yeah. it runs a lot earlier than that you know it's like i think it's 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 very much the person who writes something there's a sense in which that person doesn't exist right mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet you can meet the person who created that non-existent person to do that one thing that does exist right mm, so absolutely it's uh, it's yeah it's really it's like what the one thing that's amazing about thinking about it is that when you study critical theory in college after you leave college, you start to go, you know, all that stuff, it's very fun, but it's kind of bullshit. It doesn't really have any bearing on the real world. But if you're a performer, you really get to see how some of that stuff really does inform real-life dynamics. But and, and of course, and to not even have that perspective, sometimes, you know, you can't turn around to that person who's lost and just buried their wife and say listen, buddy, I'm really thirsty. I've got to just, you know, run to the... You, you can't... You know what I mean? Because you're not heartless, number one. And yeah. you also have gone through pain in your life. So you can have that empathy and have that feeling. No, you're a human being. You're, you're you a human being. And but at the same time, like, yeah. it's happening in a big crowd of people. Yeah, a and, you're, and you're hard. Waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and they're smiling, yeah, no. probably. They're smiling, like, because yeah. they're just about to meet their idol. No, it's, it's, no, it's terrifying. So, it's so weird. Because <laughs> you want to, if you're me, I'm a nurse. It's like, I want to go, hey, bud, um, have you had some water? Get some water. Yeah, uh, like, and, sit, and, relax. And you want to sit down. Yeah. But then a big part of you also, if you're a nurse, wants to say, look, you know, you want to go into caretaker mode where you say, look, my job here is to listen to you and not reflect or share. But as a performer, the whole reason that people are attracted is they want you to share. They exactly. want to be. They want a double sharing. We want everything. Place, exactly. Which is totally not how getting better works. Right? No. Getting better works where you have a space to share where somebody is not sharing with you. Right. So, uh, so it's it's really you know it's 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 extraordinarily uh, complex in ways that you know I don't think anybody will ever get to the bottom of it. And, yeah. And, uh, and one flaw you have as a young artist is you think you're going to be the guy who solves that knot, and you're not. <laughs> and you also sometimes you hope that you have uh, have touched people in that sense. You hope that your music well, yeah, has no, reached absolutely. them as well. That's my, that's my job. That's what I'm trying to do is make a space where people can can connect to their deepest pains and, you know, uh, mainly pain. That's why yeah, <laughs> mainly pain. there's also, there's fear and there's joy, but I mainly, let's there's be honest. Pain. <laughs> yeah. Come on, pain. let's be real. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But so, and so but also know. what's interesting is like when you writing, what I find interesting is when you writing for songs that are going to be performed. So, you know, this is this vessel, it's going to go out there into the world. But then you, when you are writing for your, your, books and for your novels and for your poetry how how different are you in those two aspects because you know you're not going to be performing that book that book is going to end okay yes you'll have signings and people will experience it that way and, and you know people can interact with you on twitter about that book but it's nothing like music right it's it's not it's not sure, this... but no, but when you're writing, you're not, there's no audience when you're writing music or anything else. When you're writing... Well, you're for you, I mean, that's interesting. Whole... Yeah, for you. But, here, but here's the thing, like, when we've been talking about performance and, and relation to the public and so forth. Writing has nothing to do with any of that, right? Whether it's music or whatever else. Writing is its own planet, right? It's a planet where there is no such thing as an audience. You know, you maybe think about an audience when you're writing, but you're not thinking about the actual audience. Mm. You're, you're creating a whole 
like a different thing that only exists for you in order for you to think about your writing a little mm. bit. You know, it's like writing is it's it's uh, writing is is intimacy with between the person writing and the thing that they're writing and the thing that stands in between that that is the actual work. Yeah, right? uh, and, yeah. and that stuff is so. Like this is deep theory stuff, but uh, no, but, I mean I yeah, I like, relate. I fully I believe yeah. that I'm not a performer myself. Thank God, <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> that would be awkward. But I absolutely um, I know I know that you needing you, it's a different um, behavior and a totally different uh, way that you can approach writing. Um, but I like that you have that uh, that th- there's a difference because some people just mesh it all together and it's really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the writing is, I mean, it's like, I, I, I hesitate to ever say, like, writing is sacred or whatever, but it is, like, it's so, when you do it, when you are writing, if you are, if you're not letting that be 100% of what you're doing, then you're not, I mean, there's a selfish aspect to it, then you're not getting as much out of it as you could be, you know, it's like, when you are writing, when, I, I don't know, I can't speak for other people, as soon as I, you know, I'll tell you a story. Yesterday, mm-hmm. I had 40 minutes between interviews when I could write, right? Um, and that was all I had in my whole day. The only space I had was a 40-minute space to get to the office, get my car parked in a parking garage several blocks away, right? Get into the office, right? Sit down, plug in, get my keyboard connected to the laptop because the N on my laptop doesn't work, so I have to use an external <laughs> keyboard. Wait, which, um, which one doesn't work? My E doesn't work. Which one doesn't work on N, yours? I, the letter N. I have to copy oh, N that is, from other places. Me too. It's, it's <laughs> Hello, I do it with a vowel. Try it with a vowel. I do it with E. E <laughs> no, is e broken. Is I'll send you a photo. I will send you a photo. It is the most terrifying. I'm like looking at it now. He's just gone. I don't yeah. even know where he went. No, he so I followed. do that. And in the emails, I always copy the N from someplace where it's a different <laughs> font size. And just today, I was thinking about like I should start sending them that way so that my fonts oh look my like. Oh my god! I'm a and you don't you person. don't format it. Do you know how many emails I've said where the e is gigantic, like the beginning of a fantasy <laughs> novel, like Once Upon a Time. So you have and to the get, o? <laughs> So I have I have oh that's key, so funny. I have an external keyboard yes. from a very old iMac that used USB B, right? Yeah. And then my my laptop uses USB C, but mm. I have these little adapters that I can plug the external keyboard in, and then I don't have this problem, right? Oh fuck, that's uh, so funny. So I have an old one, and then I have a newer one at the office. Anyway, so, yes, I go, yeah. so I'm going to the office to do this. I have 40 minutes to get all that together. And I get there and I put my key in the lock and it stops before it can turn. Oh, fuck. And I know that the door is broken and I can't get in. Right. And I couldn't. And that one space, uh, which is going to be 40 minutes of time to actually write, to be actually working on something I'm working on right now. Right. Was gone. I was like, I called the landlord. I said, hey, I have this problem, you know, and my suite mate uh, wasn't there. And so so I didn't get that time. Right. Yeah. And my day went to absolute <laughs> shit. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that was the part of the day that was going to feed me. I had spent the rest of the day on the phone doing interviews. You know, no disrespect to the interview process, but like, no, it's but tough. that was the it's part tiring. that was going to nourish my spirit because that's the part that has nothing whatsoever to do with whether people like it, with whether it has nothing to do with anything. It, it, it's literally 100% its own moment, right? And And that is when people, like when I think about, I mean, it's good for every last one of us to reflect on what privileges we enjoy. Sure, right? totally. And the yeah. fact that my work, right, even could possibly give me 40 minutes in a day where it's like, this has nothing to do with anything in the physical world. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's just, it's this space 
of infinite potential, right? And uh, and that's uh, that's you know, and, and when I didn't get it, I was like so cranky for the rest of the day. Of course, and especially when something doesn't go as planned, you like. Are the gods telling me not to write today? Do I need to spend my time elsewhere? And it's like, no, you just got locked out of your office. It's a yeah, shitty no, situation. There's no deeper meaning. No deeper meaning. Means- yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, okay. And talking about your time, I'm definitely aware that we've been chatting for a very long time. So I don't, I don't want to keep you very much longer because obviously you have a day, you have a life, and I'd love for you to write today. But are you, is there anything that you can share that you're writing at the moment? Like, are you writing toward a new book or something? I am always writing, and I will never in my life talk about work in progress. <laughs> Woohoo! That was the right answer. I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't answer this question because I feel terrible asking it. <laughs> No, I knew, I knew better than for you to actually be expecting yeah. an answer from that. It's like it's not uh, no, not happening, Leo. I, I'll never understand. That, you know, there's artists now. We were talking about oversharing. There's people live blogging the shit they're working no, on. I'm I like, can't. What are you even doing? That like yeah. That is that's barely even your business. Let yeah, alone anybody exactly. Else. <laughs> it's <laughs> precious. It's really precious. I don't tell anybody what I'm working on until it's no, literally out never. in the world. The only person who sees everything is my husband because he's right there and I trust him yeah. with my life. I actually can't put anything out God bless out our there. husbands and wives. My wife has to hear the whole damn book like the four times thing. before it publishes. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to say, yeah, my our, our spouses sound very similar. I really love that because without them, I can imagine we both would cry but it's like and, and yeah, disintegrate I, I mean i wouldn't know i was i was i was not <laughs> successful until i was married so but yeah, yeah like my wife like the thing is i'm sure she's never actually read either of my books through and there's no reason for her to yeah because she, she heard them it. in draft and she <laughs> she knows you she knows your yeah. everything your every move but totally, and yeah. lastly is there a is there a show that you've been or a band that you've been dying to see perform live so somebody obviously you know the difference between writing and performing and how the experience of live music so is there somebody that you've really been dying to see and you just haven't been able to see yet or do you really find a disconnect with live music and you don't really need to see that person perform live well, I love to see live music, but there's not a lot of space in my life for it anymore. It's like I'm a. It, it, this is very common in parenthood that, like, uh, that you know, I mean, I have two kids. Uh, by eight o'clock, if I'm home, if I'm not on the road, I am out of steam. Right, I have nothing left left, and I don't go out. As a general, I'm actually going out tonight um, to yeah. see a performer who, who I've only seen. The only time I've seen him was when we were on a bill together. Uh, as Jackson Brown. Okay. Uh, and extraordinarily fond of his music. I think he's a genius. And, uh, and we were on a bill together at Carnegie Hall of all places. <laughs> and, Amazing. Uh, and I got to like share five, you know, five words with him before he went on and played. Um, so I'm excited about that. I mean, like, but then like, you, you just mean living performers, right? I mean, no, it could be anybody, maybe somebody that you wanted to see that isn't around anymore. I'll tell you one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. We were talking about like people's curiosity or lack thereof in yes. in other musics, right? Um, when in the eighties there was a moment where Afrobeat was sort of making uh making small inroads into the US in part because Peter Gabriel and David Byrne were, were both kind yeah. of really pointing out to people like, Hey, there's a lot of really interesting music here, um, and doing whatever they did with it. So in that moment, People were noticing um, Fela, you know Fela? Yes, Fela Kuti. 
Yeah. So, oh my God. So Fela Tutsi toured the U.S. at least once, and I think he did it with the Africa 80. I think he had like an 80-person ensemble, right? Oh my gosh. I had friends who were who were hip, and they were like, "We're going to go see Fela." I didn't know nothing about that. I was a dumbass kid, you know. I was like, "Okay, cool, have fun," you know. I really strongly regret not seeing Fela when he was alive. I mean, what a what a thing to have seen, you know. Yeah, like, I can't even. Uh, they I saw mean, King Sunny Ade too. It's like I'm sure that was great, but Fela is like Fela. You know? so, no, huge. So wait, when did they? No, when and, and was so, this? When when or what? Uh, this what, would have been eighty in the eighties. Yeah, eighty three, eighty four. I feel like he played the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, which is I'm going to Google this right now. Yeah, um, Google, Google. Be, because. Uh, I, that's where I used to see wrestling matches. Right? Oh, really? And uh, yeah, no, that was my spot. And they were turning it into a music venue. Oh. Yep, he was at the Grand Olympic on November fifteenth, nineteen eighty six. Oh my um, gosh, that's crazy. And so I was at that time. Like I, I have no excuse for not being at that show. I was I was eighty six. I was home. I was back from Portland. Um, the set list oh, is so great. Usually, if you see a three song set list on setlist.fm. It means they didn't get a whole set list. But you know with a Fela show, it just means he played three extremely long songs. Long songs, exactly. And probably played material that he was just improvising as well. Because often, you know... Yeah, no, the first track is called Say Ray It's a band instrumental. And the next one is just like that. And the third one is Confusion Break Bone. And, that was, oh and, I, and I bet you it was four hours long. Right. <laughs> and like, I I, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure my friend Tom went to see it. Tom was trying to tell me about Fela, and I couldn't be bothered. I was into goth music. I was, it was like, yeah. and like, and and then Tom got me into Fela years later when he shared uh, Coffin for Head of State with me. Do you know that one? Yeah, yeah. And so wow. I mean, it's like this one of the most incredible. Speaking of oversharing, it's like <laughs> you know, Fela, uh, his mother dies, right, and uh, and he he carries the coffin through the streets to the state house. Right. And, uh, and then he writes a song for it about it called coffin for head of state. Right. And, uh, and it's just this amazing melding of the personal and the, and the political and, and the public and all that is this incredible tapestry. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's like, so, so I'm sorry I didn't go see that show. Cause I could have. <laughs> not. What do you mean? Oversharing? What, what did you mean? when well, you said well, oversharing? Well, Fela, absolutely. The line between Fela's public and private life, like sure. it exists, right? But at the same time, he's living politically. He's in Nigeria, which the politics of Nigeria, like I'm not qualified to speak on them, but I know a little from having read Achebe and Soyinka and uh, and and engaged with Fela, uh, you know, to know enough that like like he's living his life in a way that his political life, his personal life, and his public life as a performer, the lines between those are very blurry. Absolutely, like they're very, you know, and. Uh, and well, that's the, we were talking about in terms of oversharing. Is like that's not healthy. You should have, mm, you know, for space. the sake of your psyche, mm. you should have hard lines between some of those. But then again, politically, that's not always possible. If you're living in Nigeria in the '70s, good luck trying to separate your personal life from your political life. You can't. You can't because you know? so, you're immersed in it completely. Well, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the state is is has got its boot on you, and so you know, uh, so there's lots of that stuff to think about, you know. But but with but with Fela, didn't he have like like, didn't people come to live with him? And I, I, I feel like there's like a whole, uh, it gets bigger than the music and it gets bigger than him because there's a whole, there's a lot. So. Yeah, there's, there's a world. I mean, but I would have like loved to see that show. And I love that you brought yeah. that up because that's... But those are the things is like, it sucks if you, but you're not as old as me. And like, I think when I was young, the stuff I could have seen that whatever yeah. reason I did, it's like, 
once you get older, you will have such valid reasons to not go to shows. Oh, yeah. Look, I'm I'm too tired. I've got too much going on. You know, your life. Yeah. If you are in your 20s or 30s, you should 100% go to any show you're even mildly curious Mm, about. mm. (laughs) No, absolutely. Do you feel like your kids are getting a taste of that 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 young? Because obviously, kids, you know, especially parents who are in the industry, they try to involve their kids, you know, as soon as possible. So, do you feel like? So, I'll tell you a story about that that I think you will like. Um, (laughs) So, my younger son Roman, he really loved who I uh, met earlier. Yeah. You met Roman, so he's he's actually the older one. He's seven, right? Okay. When he was four, he really gets into my CDs. There's a boombox in the living room. Mm-hmm. And he'll grab a CD and he'll get like, he'll have a very long running relationship with the CD where he's play, playing it every single day. Right? Oh, those are the days. And you get sick of it, but, but you just totally let him run with it because he's having that, you know, you know how it is. It's like when you're eight and you get into a song, you play it 45 times. <laughs> yeah. Because so, it sounds so, different uh, every time. So he got don't you into... Know? <laughs> He got into Super Ape by Lee Scratch Perry. Do you know this record? No, I don't know that. The Revenge of Super Ape? It might be The Return, but I think it's The Revenge of Super okay. Ape. And, and Roast, Roast Fish and Cornbread. There are two records by Lee Scratch Perry, who's this titan of reggae. Do you know Lee Scratch Perry at all? I don't actually. I mean, it sounds so familiar, but I can't speak on many of the early Bob Marley stuff. Yes, some yeah. Of the stuff, some of the early Marley stuff was produced by Lee Scratch Perry. And you can't, I mean, Bob Marley... Is, is the cosmos, right? He's like, he's his own universe of, of charisma. But Lee Scratch Perry deserves some of the credit for how those early records connected with people. His vision of sound, I mean, we could do a whole separate podcast about the Jamaican producers of that era and, and their legacy. Uh, but, <laughs> but Lee Scratch Perry is one of them. He produced Max Romeo's um, uh, Fire in a Babylon, right? That's him. Wow. Um, and his own, and his own, I mean, he's like, Lee Scratch Perry's ear is one of the most miraculous things in the history of the world. But, uh, but so he, but he also made his own records, which are some of the best records ever made. And his dubs, like they're their own thing. They're not King Tubby's dubs. They're not scientist dubs. They're Lee Scratch Perry's dubs. Right. And, uh, and he's, he's, and he's old, he's very old and he's had well-documented mental health issues. Uh, I mean, I think we can talk about that. He burned down his studio at one point because he thought it was possessed. Yeah. Um, so, so he's an old man. From Jamaica touring right and I know like I'm I'm in my late 40s or possibly 50 at this point and I'm like you have to go see Lee Scratch Perry you don't know how long he'll be alive you know? yes and uh, and go see him do his thing well my son uh is so into the cd that he found that he was listening to roast fish and cornbread right uh, in return of super Ape. uh and I got the idea I was like go to soundcheck see if there's you, you know the venue you know, they'll let you in. Yeah. You can go in and, and Roman can't stay up late. He's too, like four at this point. But so I got him in and, uh, and, and we go in to see some of Soundcheck. And I, I asked the sound man, say, hey, is, is, is Perry around? He said, no, no, he'll, he'll be here like five minutes before stage time. That's his, that's his arrival time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm like, cool. You know, well, and I, so I told my son, you know, Lee Scratch Perry, he's at the hotel, you know, and, and Roman was cool with that. But, uh, but he also, the set, they were setting up a stage, and he saw, I said, is that a drum? I said, you yeah, know, that's a conga drum. And, uh, and the tech said, you know, does he want to play it? And I was like, sure. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Up on stage. Yeah. So Roman plays whoever Lee Scratch Perry's <laughs> conga player is conga. And then he called it, because he was just a small kid. And I said it was a conga drum, but he called it a conqueror drum. Oh. 
Oh my god! The greatest thing I've oh ever heard. Oh my god, life. that is so. <laughs> my, I feel like drug. I of actually just I leapt back in my seat. I'm not even kidding. I'm sitting in one of those office chairs, <laughs> and I'm my feet lifted the ground. Oh, no, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's a <laughs> conqueror drum. Beautiful, and I have footage of Roman playing Lee Scratch Perry's conga oh, player's conqueror drum. Oh and my so god! That was—I forget what our jumping-off point was for that. But, but no, uh, that is amazing. Yeah. Well, I, just just thinking of like if your if your kids are going to shows and stuff, and I think that oh, yeah. when he gets so, older, yeah, so that, I, yeah. I, I, I take them where they can go. Like Roman loves to go to movies. Both of them love to go. Movies are for little yeah. kids. Mm. Like take the place of shows to them. It's like it's perfect because it's a little more controlled than a show. But it is this, this sense of occasion, and, uh, and we, we go see the, We saw the Spider Man movie, I think, five times. So. Oh, amazing. Did you see that movie? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I was waiting for so long to see it, and just everything about it is perfect. I, perfect. I walked out feeling very light, which is kind of strange because a lot of the films that I, I, I do only tend to watch big blockbuster because I love Marvel and I love sci fi and I love fantasy and. And they make me feel light, but this was something else. Like, I didn't, I just, I loved every second. I didn't think about anything else during that movie, which is so rare. You know, you talk about attention yeah, no, span. Yeah, that movie is, and it, it works that way two and three and four times. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the best movies of recent years to me. It was like totally, I was so immersed. It was so great. That's amazing. Well, oh, thank you so much for chatting. I, I, I feel like I well, probably... Well, my pleasure. This would be like the longest podcast in the history of the world. <laughs> but it's a testament to your amazing stories. But they have, they it's do tend to, to go long. endless ability to just yammer. <laughs> <laughs> This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and The Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.